Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I am Jinx, your co-host. I am sitting here with Paul Farrell. Paul, how's it going this evening, man? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Good deal. How's uh, how's everything in your life? We haven't talked in a while. It's been uh, we we took a break from Hammer Pub. Uh, Foy and I chatted last week. I, I missed you. Don't tell don't tell Foy that, and I won't I either. But uh, I, I missed you, pal. I missed you too, man. It, it's it's hard taking a break from the Hammer Pub. I know. But, uh, I know. But you know, I I made it through somehow. And and we're here today, and that's what's important. Yes, we are. Hey, uh, hey, Paul. Guess what? What's that? We have a guest. We have a guest. Yeah, we have a guest. You didn't know we have a guest? Well, I mean, are you going to introduce them? I I thought that maybe you could introduce them, but now you're acting like you don't even know that we have. Well, a guest. wait a minute. Let me just introduce me the guest. All right, fine. Yeah, here's here's what we're doing. Um, Gosh, I thought you were going to take care of this. Uh, hi, hi, everybody. This is this is Paul, co-host of the Hammer Pub. Um, just kind of jumping in uh, from this uh, little bit of a botched opening. It's okay. We're going to recover from this. We got plenty of podcasts ahead of us, and uh, I just want to take a moment uh, to welcome in uh, uh, our guest tonight, who I'm incredibly excited to have on, uh, Emily Von Zela uh, from. The Dead Ringers podcast. I don't, I don't know if listeners out there are familiar with it, um, but she is the heart and soul of that podcast. Uh, and she has written for sites like bloody disgusting and daily dead. And, uh, she's a great guest for podcasts as is evidenced by her times, uh, where she appears on the corpse club, uh, some of my favorite corpse club episodes. Uh, so she is here with us tonight, Emily, how you doing? I'm so awesome, Paul, because now I'm blushing and I feel so loved. <laughs> Thank you. You're very loved. It's really, really very loved. To I'm excited here. to have you here. It's, I'm excited it's, to be it's here. <laughs> I, it's, you know, a lot of times when we have guests on, um, and this is no slight to the other guests, because now it sounds like I'm doing that. Um, but, you know, it's people maybe that I haven't had a conversation with or that I don't talk to that often. But I was really excited to have you on because I've talked to you many times on Dead Ringers and I know how awesome you are to have on podcasts. So I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, so, yes, I'm very excited. See, and I knew that I was going on a high quality podcast because I've spent so much time po podcasting with you and I know that you don't do stupid shit. So uh, there we go. Thank you. I, I, I try not to do stupid shit. So it's, Am it's I allowed good. to curse? I probably should have asked that before yeah. we started. Not <laughs> only are you allowed, it's actually encouraged. It Fantastic. Is. I found my people. Yes. This is, well, it's a pub. It's a pub atmosphere, right? So we, we all, uh, you know, drinks are encouraged if, if, if one is so inclined. Uh, and sometimes after a few drinks, uh, you know, the language gets a little loose. Yeah. Excellent. Does. I've had two sips and I'm already, I'm already swearing like a sailor. <laughs> two <so>. sips in. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are we all drinking this evening, Paul? Uh, I, I got to imagine you have some sort of swill on hand. Uh, well, what what you know, are you drinking tonight? It wouldn't be a hammer pub if you didn't crap on beer. Uh, wow. I'm drinking a stone, another stone IPA, which is Blah. typically what I what I pull out for a hammer pub these days. I'm drinking a Fear Movie Lions, is what it's called. It's a hazy double IPA. Uh, and it's quite delicious. Mm -hmm. Okay, Emily, how about you? I am drinking. It was it was kind of an internal battle right until I sat down at my computer if I wanted beer or wine, mainly because they drink so much wine in this movie. Uh, <laughs> but I went with the beer, and I chose an Elysian 
pumpkachino coffee pumpkin ale that is somehow still in my fridge after last fall. I think I just hit it and I didn't realize it was there. And now it's like a special treat for me. That's very cool. I'm impressed that you have a, a pumpkin beer. I'm I'm kind of jealous, actually. Uh, but that's, I am too. That's and I, I don't even like beer. It's so good. <laughs> Sounds tasty. I am. Uh, I I have a couple of bottles of um, yeah water on hand. I'm uh, I've been teetotaling for about six weeks now, and I got to tell you, I miss drinking. Uh, it's gonna happen again someday, one day. I don't know when, but uh, but no, no. I'm just gonna sip water and try and stay remotely intelligible this evening because uh, you know, as Paul can attest, uh, when I drink, you know, it, it's it's a bit of a flip of the coin as to how long I can stay coherent. Whole episode, half an episode, ten minutes. Who can say? It was always a uh, <laughs> roll of the dice, but uh, no, no. I just wanted to say, Emily, thank you so much for being on and uh, not just for coming on the podcast, but for electing to choose what I consider to be the very best Hammer film there is to talk about. So uh, so my hat's off to you for that. Thank you very much. I, I knew that whatever option I picked would be glorious, but I picked the tippy top, apparently. <laughs> I love this movie and I can't wait to get into it. But before we do, the way this podcast works, we usually take about the first 45 minutes or so to chat about our recent watches before we dive into the uh, movie commentary proper. So tell you what, why don't we choose a couple of recent watches each? We can chat about them at length and then uh, we'll uh, we'll watch some Frankenstein created woman. Emily, what have you seen this past week or two? Uh, I have seen two movies that are totally at the opposite end of the spectrum from one another. So I'm going to start at the um, heavier end. Um, have you guys checked out Violation on Shutter yet? That was my second choice this evening. <laughs> Excellent choice. I, I haven't seen it yet, so I have to add it to my, my watch list here. It's very good, in my opinion. I'm not going to speak for Jigs, but I, I really enjoyed I it. I really loved it, yeah. Yeah, it's really challenging and has a couple scenes that are hard to watch but everything that it does it does so gracefully and stylistically and it's just excellent all around yeah i i i agree i agree it is a you know i watched it uh probably about a full day ago now it's been about 24 hours i sat down and watched it and uh yeah, I, I, it's a Shutter original, and you know, I had heard some stuff about this one, and I, I thought I'd give it a look. And damn, is it a, is it a film? Um, Paul, do you do you know anything about it? I'll try and dance around spoilers. If, I uh... I know nothing about this movie. Um, I've heard the name, like I've heard people bring it up, but I don't know what it's about. But um, I'm I'm really excited to watch it now. <laughs> hearing, it is uh, uh, hearing this. It, it's. I got to tell you, like the the the, the rape revenge subgenre is really not not my bag, you know, not at all. Even the movies that are widely considered to be great within it, and you know, classics within that sort of uh, set of films, it just maybe you know, not for me. And that's not that's not me looking down at the genre, you know, it's just not for me. But I got to say, I I loved this film. Um, it. Um, Stars uh, Madeline Sims Fewer, I believe, is a woman named Miriam who uh, she's a woman who takes a vacation back to her. Emily, am I getting this right? Was it her childhood home? I think. I think so. That's uh, kind of how I interpreted it, but it, Cabin on a Lake. 
same here. Yeah, they never quite underline exactly what it is, but you get some hints that it, it's not just a cabin that they rent. Like, there's a history there. And uh, anyway, she goes back to her childhood home to visit with her sister and her sister's husband, who is an old childhood friend as well. And you get the sense that things aren't going great between Miriam and her husband. And there's, you know, sort of tension between she and her sister from years back, it seems. And uh, the only person she does seem to get along with and have a connection to is her brother-in-law. And, uh, you know, I really appreciated the fact that the movie takes its time in letting us sort of get to know these characters and sort of become invested in their relationships before the movie, uh, the movie sort of fractures at a certain point, you know, uh, it, it, at a certain point, the film is told in kind of like this chronologically skewed way that it, in kind of a fascinating way, it almost works like memory, you know, uh, imagine trying to remember a, a sequence of events, but each moment reminds you of something else. So you jump back to that memory before you can get back to the sequence and move forward. And it seems like the movie very much shares in, you know, our leading lady's point of view in that way. And, uh, <laughs> at a certain point the movie becomes pretty damned explicit sexually like they're uh, like a a, 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 <laughs> a man's erection is on full display for a fairly long stretch of the film um mm-hmm. I, I think it was like okay. 10 or 15 minutes something like mm-hmm. that yeah mm-hmm. they were not shying away from that one bit it was it it kind of it was stunning how sort of frank the movie is in that regard in mm. in that regard and yet you know well I'll say at a certain point the film becomes very very violent and it all culminates in a sequence that really had me holding my breath it's worth noting that what I'm referencing it's not an assault in the way that the film's subgenre might have you thinking it is rather you know the the sequence I'm talking about it's a simply a struggle between two people a fight of sorts and Emily I don't know about you but I think it's one of the most intense sequences I've seen in a movie in ages yeah just how do I how do I talk about it um <laughs> watching the two of them Oh, God, I don't want to give anything away. You see the different perspectives that are on display and you see the wheels turning in everybody's head. So as this confrontation develops and this conversation keeps going, you you see the blueprints for where it's headed. And it's fascinating the way the filmmaker so subtly puts that on display, but also it makes it so obvious um, how the situation is unfolding. Does that make sense? Probably not yeah. if you haven't seen it. I, I think <laughs> it did, but I've seen it. So I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm not certain that Paul will better. Well, but I mean, I, 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 better that I think I, so. yeah. And again, I haven't seen it, but <laughs> I think I'm getting the sense of like the broad strokes of, of what makes it powerful. And uh, from what, from what y'all are saying uh, and it's, it's definitely, and you know the rape revenge subgenre. I think all I think all horror fans have a, a complicated relationship with that subgenre because you know there are some great mm-hmm. movies that that deal with with these things, um, and there are and obviously the history of the subgenre is is complicated. Um, but every once in a while, you get a movie like uh, you know Revenge from a few years ago. Um, movies that that sort of repurpose it um, and take it in a different direction um, or 
use it to provide a different perspective. And if it if it's a movie that sort of does something along those lines, then I'm definitely really interested in watching it, even though I know it's going to be a difficult experience. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's funny that you mentioned revenge because much like that film, this film has a film, ah, excuse me, a female filmmaker at the helm. Uh, in fact, it's the, uh, the lead Ms. Uh, Sims fewer is a co-director on the film with a gentleman. Oh, named okay. Dusty Mancinelli. And I got to say, I think, you know, the movie all winds up in a place that's kind of, I think, very unexpected for films of this type. You know, mm-hmm. it begins grounded in character and it kind of ends grounded in character as well. And I really appreciated that. It's uh, it's one hell of a journey to take with this one particular character. I think it's uh, it's just really intense. It's infuriating. I, I think it has a lot of heart. And to me, it's sort of it sort of shows what I personally would prefer out of films like this, where it, it, it doesn't shy away from the, the sort of inciting incident, you know, the act the title refers to, but neither still does it present it in an exploitative way. And I think a big part of that must be down to the fact that it is, you know, directed by a woman. It's, it's a much more interesting perspective and one that I, after watching this and after watching revenge, like I, I guess, you know, I, 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 well, I wouldn't say that I have to watch movies like this, but I think I would much prefer to see that perspective with a subgenre moving forward, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah it totally yeah. does. I think that, you know, between those two films and um, some others that aren't coming to mind right now, um, I think that women being able to tell these stories and to tell them in a way that, you know, highlights all of you know the horrificness all of the trauma and then subsequently when you know if the movie chooses to present it all of the healing i think that um women being able to tell those stories finally is important and i think it's what's making this latest bout of rape revenge films stand out from their predecessors yeah very cool but yeah that is uh that is currently on shutter the movie is called violation and uh I honestly, I give it my highest possible. Eh, why can I not speak this evening? Uh, I give it my highest possible recommendation. I really do. I think uh, it would be very hard for me. I know we're only a few months in, but it would be very hard for me to imagine putting together a top ten list for the end of the year and this movie not landing on it. Hmm. So, all, right, all that well, being that's... said, Paul, what have you seen? Um. Well, it's been a while since I've. I've been on this podcast, as you pointed out. So I've watched a lot of movies. Um, so in the last month, I've spent about $500,000 on Blu-rays, given all the sales and everything that's been happening. Uh, so I have like boxes of movies arriving every day because between <laughs> Warner Archive and Kino Lorber and uh, Shout Factory and all these things, I, I've just got this stack of things on my to-watch pile. So I've been slowly working my way through that um i'm gonna start with a movie called uh, burn witch burn aka night of the eagle from 1962 uh have have either of you seen this one no uh-uh i have um, not but i've always wanted to yeah it's it's a it's a british movie um very much feels like it could have been a hammer film interestingly um it's a little bit 
it 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 reminds me more in style of something like uh curse of the demon um than some of the hammer stuff like it's a little bit more heady and a little bit slower paced and less interested in some of the uh i don't know the, well the gothic stuff and and whatnot but at any rate, it's a movie that is sort of pitting logic against superstition. Um, and it and what I really, really lo- I, I loved it. I'll just start by saying it's it's like one of those movies where I watched it and I was like, oh, this is instantly one of my favorite horror films. Um, and it's about the power of like belief uh, juxtaposed against sort of the futility of of doubt when you're faced with something that you um that you sort of know is real or that you want to believe isn't real. Um, it's incredibly eerie. It's very atmospheric. It's incredibly well photographed and just very engaging. Um, the plot is basically uh, there's this professor at a school, at a college. Um, everything's going incredibly well for him. Um, he's very popular there. He's about to become one of the youngest professors to ever get like a chair at the university board. Uh, his, his wife is, you know, very doting. They have a good relationship. Um, but he is someone who very much believes in science and, uh, uh, you know, is, doesn't think any sort of superstitious stuff is real. And if anything is actually damaging to have around you. Um, and so like the, but you slowly find out that his wife, cause over the years they've traveled across the world and she's picked up different little like spells and things that she does from their time overseas that like gives them good luck and protects them. Um, and she's been slowly do, like doing these things in secret as he's becoming, as they've been more successful as a family and a couple uh, and particularly him and his career. Um, and one night he sort of uncovers that she's been doing this and he gathers up all of the little like relics and things that she's positioned around the house and, you know, uh, little hex bags that are kind of positive things. And he burns them in front of her. And he's like, none of this means anything. You know, we're not doing this anymore. And the minute he does that, uh, things start taking a turn. Uh, and his entire sort of world slowly becomes kind of flipped upside down. And I mean, that's sort of the inciting kind of plot element of the movie, but where it goes, it's, it's surprisingly frightening. Um, very, very well done. The, the it's plays, it deals, you know, it's one of those black and white movies that just uses shadow to such an impressive extent. It's a cool witch movie. It's a, it's a very cool sort of supernatural movie. Um, again, I, I compare it to Curse of the Demon because there is sort of what feels like an entity that's kind of stalking him um, in a way. And it's almost, again, the manifestation of his disbelief. Um, of course, there is like a narrative purpose for it. But um, yeah, I just I loved everything about this movie. It is it is wonderful. And I really recommend uh, people check it out. This Sold is, uh... me. I want to watch it. <laughs> Same here. Uh, Emily, this is the part of the podcast where uh, Paul talks me into buying Blu-rays. While he's talking, <laughs> I pick up my phone. I'm sort of half listening and half dialing in orders to Amazon. So, uh, Oh, trust me. I, I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, we've, 
Um, Emily uh, and I are really bad influences on each other on the other show. In fact, there's been several episodes where we've bought movies before the recording even started. Yeah. I think that happened with uh, Cruel Jaws. Yes. This um, is what happens when one of us is running late. Yeah. <laughs> no, right. He runs late, Jaws. so Emily and Paul go shopping. <laughs> yep. Is that Jaws 5? Is that the one that was sort of had the slip cover that, or is that another one? Yeah. Yeah, yes. that was it. It had the Jaws okay. 5 slip. Yeah. I picked that up. I still haven't watched it yet because uh, part of me really wants to watch it in sequence with the other Jaws movies, even though I understand that there is no connection whatsoever. No, uh, none, none at all. <laughs> you know, I, maybe a Brody might show up or somebody that I can you imagine. Is Brody. I don't know. That's true. It's possible. Uh, so, okay, I guess my choice for first uh, would be, if Violation doesn't count, you know, I'm not going to have much to talk about, I think, this episode because I've, 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 I've been a busy bee. Um, but... Um, have either of you seen a movie called Come True? Um, I don't think so. Emily, have you seen or heard of this film? Sorry, what was it? I was having an earphone issue. Oh, sorry. <laughs> have you seen a movie called Come True? Yes, yes. I saw that a couple weeks ago. Okay. Um, I, I, I'll be very curious to see what you... Uh, you, you have to say about this movie after I, I, I talk about it a bit, because I got to tell you, I thought the come true was an excellent film until it's not. Um, and I, I, it breaks my heart because I was so on board with this movie. I, I, I just, I, I think it's very well made. I think it's beautifully shot. I think it has this gorgeous synth score and great performances, especially from, uh, the lead is it? Um, I think her name was Julia Sarah Stone. I think she's marvelous in the film. Um, Paul, the uh, if you haven't seen it yet, okay, I'll fill you in a little bit. And listeners who may not have seen it yet, it's about a young woman named Sarah who is. Um, she's kind of. They never quite say exactly what the deal is, but she's undergoing some troubles at home with her mother, and as a result, she's taken to sort of spending no time at her house. She, uh, you know, we see her sleeping in the park. She stays nights with a close friend when she can. Uh, anything to sort of keep her from hanging her hat at her actual home. And uh, eventually she runs across this offer for a university sleep study that will not only pay her, but give her a place to sleep for the next couple of months. And uh, there are a couple of fellow sleep study guinea pigs that we get to know. There's a small group of scientists and observers who are doing the study, uh, including one who sort of catches Sarah's eye, which leads to a, 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 a kind of sort of romance that's more than a little creepy at times. I, I would, when you have to have a moment in the film where a character has to underline the fact that they're 18 years old to a bearded, bespectacled scientist guy, like, it's just a little, it's, 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 I don't know. It's a little weird to me. I don't. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, without revealing too much more, I'll just note that the plot goes in some interesting directions with the, uh, the true nature of the study being revealed and, you know, with this nightmarish recurring figure sort of popping up in everyone's dreamscapes at once during the study. And I'm not going to spoil anything save to say like it all builds to this amazing climax where this, it all leads to this moment. I think there, there's a hint of something really magnificent and absolutely terrifying having happened. And then it goes a step further, almost like this little epilogue 
that's absolutely bonkers and completely brought a smile to my face. It's such a weird, big swing that I couldn't help but love it. And then it gets to this very final shot, this big reveal. And it nearly tanked the entire film for me. It's like the film extends its middle finger in your face. It Not even that. It rubs its middle finger all over your face while giggling maniacally at you. It reduces everything we've witnessed for the prior 90 minutes down to something with the depth of a meme. Like, the, the text in that final shot is even something that you yourself have probably already run across online. It's so deeply disappointing that it's kind of astonishing that the filmmakers went there after doing so damn well with pretty much everything else. I... I'd still recommend that folks check it out, but maybe just, okay, there's a moment with a bathroom mirror, and that's all I'm going to say. That's not a spoiler in and of itself, (laughs) but maybe just press stop at that moment and pretend that the damn credits began there. I'm just throwing that out there. That's my suggestion. (laughs) I wish somebody had told me that. That's all I'm going to say about the movie. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Like, it was a really fascinating movie. It's visually stunning. There's a lot going on. There's a lot under the surface. There's a lot to think about and it's giving you so much and then more layers underneath. But yeah, we got to that last, I don't even wanna say five minutes. I wanna say like 30 seconds. And part of me was like, okay, this can't mean what's on screen cause that's too impossibly dumb. It has to mean something else and I need to find it. <laughs> Because we need to correct this. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, give me the Snyder cut of Come True, uh, where he adds another two hours <laughs> and ends it in a way that's just not that. Uh, Paul, I would be fascinated to hear what you think about the film. And here's the thing I, I feel like we might have almost talked you out of watching it. It oh, really still is. still watch it. Definitely watch it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I'm, it I'm is. curious enough, like, about this now that I definitely want to watch it because I want to know, like, what you know, what you're talking about. I'm I, so I, I, I will, uh, I will definitely check it out and report back. Yeah, damn movie. Anyway, <laughs> um, and you know what's crazy is the uh, the filmmaker. I believe it's uh, his name is Anthony Scott Burns. He actually directed a segment for uh, that horror anthology. Was it Holidays a few years back? And it was hands down the best thing in that anthology. Like I loved it. I think it starred, uh, Oh, the lead from, uh, house of the devil, Jocelyn Donahue, I believe. And, Talk uh, about father's day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Nice. <laughs> and I, good memory, Paul. Um, I love, I adore that short film. Like it, it's just packed with so much style and dread and, it, it, watching come true. Like it's totally that guy's voice carried over to feature length. And it's, Man, the movie had me rooting for it. I was like, yeah. you're doing so well, movie. Stick the landing. Stick the landing. It didn't stick to the landing. It feels like somebody snuck into the editing booth after he thought he was done and <laughs> packed something on the end. And then they, like, shipped it. So there was no take backs. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with it. I could you how infuriating would that be? Because that actually almost... Paul, the final shot is so unbelievably insulting that really what emily just said actually sounds plausible <laughs> wow. 
So I, see, I'm so curious now. Like, I, I definitely want to watch it just to see what this is. Like, <laughs> just to get a sense of this. That's um, that's come true for us. Anyway, but yeah, Emily, uh, do you have another choice? What else have you seen recently? Uh, this one is not a new watch. This is an annual watch that I dust off every April 1st because it's April Fool's Day. Yay! Yay! Such a, such a I love one. it. It used to be just kind of like a fun movie I'd watch on a lark just because April Fool's Day is a dumb holiday and hey, look, there's a movie associated with it. <laughs> After a couple watches, I'm like, I really actually like this movie. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> it's a blast, that movie. I love that movie so much. Yeah, it really does a good job of kind of balancing all of the hallmarks of where the slasher genre was um, in the early mid-ish 80s, because I think it came out when it was kind of starting to drag. Um, But it also peppers it with like a lot of just humor and scene play between the characters, and it just kind of keeps things lively where it otherwise would have gone a little bit quiet so it's just it's a fun freaking movie that's awesome i have not seen it in years but i uh, i need to revisit it because i remember it being an absolute blast i think uh i think the last time i caught it i was going through kind of a slasher kick and i just i just wanted to revisit it but i also remember roughly around that same time I caught, if I'm getting this right, because honestly, I think I may have tried to block out as much as possible. I think it was around the same time that I tried watching the remake from around, I want to say it was about a decade ago. Have either of you seen that? I think I did, but I don't remember it very well. Yeah, I I watched the remake like when it came out and it went, yeah, I remember nothing about it. Just that it didn't really... I don't know. I don't I don't know that I like hated it, but I just it didn't really like stick with me, obviously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I remember about it was that it starred uh oh Laurie from Rob Zombie's Halloween movies, uh Scout Taylor Compton, I think. Oh, but they yeah. they sort of bandied about her participation in the movie, I think because Halloween had been a success and uh and then I think she if I recall this correctly, like she is hardly in the movie. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I that's that's something. But I knew I do need to revisit the original. Has there been that feels like a movie that's primed for like Scream Factory treatment? There has to be like a release. They do of that, have right? one. Yeah. Oh, OK. I yeah, there's a there's a collector's edition. Um uh, through Scream Factory that came out, I don't know, like a year ago, two years ago. It, it's fairly recent, but um, it it's just such a fun, it's sort of one of those like warm blanket movies for me. Like it, it's, and it, I mean, you don't want to like give away the twist for those who haven't seen it listening, but it's, it it's a movie that really revels in like horror movie tropes. And it's incredibly meta for its time like it was kind of meta before meta was much of a thing in horror mm-hmm. um and it's got like an amazing cast i mean amy Steele's in it and deborah foreman and uh, biff from back to the future thomas f wilson <laughs> is like a main guy in it like it's just it's got such a fun group of people uh in the movie as well it's just everything about it's a good time good deal paul how about you uh yeah i've Gosh, I've got so many different directions I could go. Um, I watched 
I guess I'll land with, um, I was going to go with another older movie, uh, a 1946 movie called The Spiral Staircase, which is sort of a fun proto slasher sort of film noirish kind of movie. Uh, but instead, I'm just going to cheat and mention it really quickly and move on to Vinegar Syndrome uh, <laughs> and, and do something completely batshit insane. Uh, so because I'm not I'm not only just about those classy movies, I'm about those that that good, good Vinegar Syndrome shit. Um, so their most recent package uh, came with a couple movies. I'm just going to double feature these real quick because. Again, I like to cheat in this and also like, you know, I can I can do this quick. The first one's Rush Week from 1989. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen Rush Week. I've never heard of Rush Week. I I have not either, which means okay. I did not it's... I did not order this yet, so I'm going to add this to my list. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Uh it's a so it's a 1989 college slasher as it sounds like. Uh so it's it's pretty straightforward. It's it's uh, you know, during Rush Week like uh when people are rushing uh fraternity houses and sorority houses. And there's this uh, uh, student that's a reporter for the you know school newspaper, and there's a murderer operating, like a series of murders has begun, and so she's sort of trying to investigate the murders and write about it, and the dean of the school's trying to get her to stop and like you know keep it all hush hush because Rush Week is such an important week for this particular college, and so this movie is just sort of set against the backdrop of like crazy college parties and the murder what i like most about the movie is the killer in it like he he just looks like he walked out of an over-the-top uh fraternity sort of uh you know ritual that they do and is wearing like the long robe and he's got a big axe and it's just incredibly (laughs) over the top and stylized i mean this movie like you can totally tell it came at the end of the 80s because it really feels like the last sort of sleazy trope encrusted battle cry of the 80s slasher like it's trying so hard to be every 80s slasher you've seen and it's not quite there in terms of the level (laughs) of quality but i can't say that i didn't enjoy it and i mean you know it's full of there's a lot of like shameless nudity and like you know just very very uh I don't know, just over the top stuff that shouldn't or doesn't need to be there, but it kind of gleefully revels in it. Um, it's it's atmospheric in some ways, so I'll give it that. It's completely socially tone deaf, uh, <laughs> but it is it is fun. <laughs> it is a fun movie. I can't say that it's not. So if you are a Vinegar Syndrome fan and you like slashers, I think that it's probably one worth checking out. Paul, can I ask a question? And maybe it's not, not, and I will cut this out of the podcast if you say that uh, you're not keen on the question. Uh, That is is my promise to you. But (laughs) isn't it fun in part because it's tone deaf? Because you can sort of laugh at it and the sort of time that it comes from? I think anybody that buys movies from Vinegar Syndrome would have to say yes to that question. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, but that's part of what we love about those movies, um, you know, and that they come from a, a very specific time and place, right? Like they, they feel like little time capsules when you watch some of these films. Um, and I sort of love that, you know, before 
this movie arrived in my mailbox, like I didn't know what it was, you know, like I, I vinegar syndrome is just sort of, you know, they, they, they unearth and excavate these movies that probably would have been lost to time. Um, and now give them these like phenomenal releases. <laughs> like this, and, this movie that they never even better... had back in the day or probably just <laughs> right. Right. It's like this movie has a better release than like most studio movies. Like like most big budget movies just get like, you know, a random Blu-ray you can buy at Walmart. Like they don't get the treatment of like a special custom drawn slipcover and, you know, all these extra interviews and things like that and commentaries and uh, the frame by frame sort of transfers they do where they clean everything up. Um, you know, it, it it's a gorgeous looking print. Like, I can't believe how good Rush Week looks on Blu-ray, you know, like it. it and yet I'm happy it, it does. And it, it sort of adds to the charm of watching it, you know, because you're, you're kind of stri- struck by the quality of the release uh, put against the quality of the actual filmmaking i guess at the time and and you got to believe that the people who who made these movies never in a million years would have assumed that like people would be buying their stuff from a boutique label for however many dollars a pop you know all these years later so i i just it's a special relationship i have with them i i love uh vinegar syndrome and i i will always stand by what they do Good deal. You know, it's funny how they can even inspire purchases that have nothing to do with them in a way. Or, well, I won't say nothing, but I picked up a Blu-ray of The Fear, which I still haven't mm-hmm. seen. That is a movie that escaped me for years when uh, when I was sort of trolling video stores back in the day. And damn it, like that that cover and the fact that it was like a, a, a restored cut and all the sort of buzz around it, I couldn't help but pull the trigger on that one. It's still sitting on my table unopened like hey hey you gonna watch me (laughs) paid a lot of money for me you should probably just go ahead and watch hey where are you going you know um john squires talked about seeking out like he apparently enjoyed the fear so much he sought out a dvd copy of the fear 2 and actually said it was even more fun than the first one (laughs) so there i was going to ebay seeking out a copy of the fear 2 (laughs) <laughs> so that I can double feature these movies now. Like I haven't even nice. seen the first one. Now I have to own the second one. So, That's great. Uh... But you're going to have such an awesome night the night you watch those. Back that will back. be a very fun night. I can't, I'm looking forward to it. It'll, it'll eventually, as a matter of fact, I think I got a notification on my phone uh, that it is currently sitting in a mailbox waiting for me right now. So I'm going to, after, yeah, after this is done, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just stay up late. Maybe I'll watch, I'll make it a fear kind of night. Paul, if I'm kind of tired, am I going to make it through that double feature, do you think? Like, is, uh, is the fear going to hold my attention to that degree? I mean, it, it has so I'm going to have to hold downs. on, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, the fear is a weird movie for me because I have, um, I think I talked about it, didn't I? Did I did, yes. talk about it in a hammer pub? So I won't go too deep into it. But yeah, it was one that I always saw the cover of at the, the video store. Like, I vividly remember that cover and I never rented it i was always like afraid of it so when i saw that vinegar syndrome was doing it i was like oh my god i i was hit with this like visceral memory of being a child and and walking past that cover and like shuddering and i was like well of course i have to own this and watch it immediately and and finally see what i was missing um and it's you know it's it's as messy as you 
probably would assume it is. Um, but the thing about that movie that really does stand out is the the wooden man concept. Because the whole concept of the film is that they're, they go to this cabin, like the psychiatrist goes to his childhood cabin and brings the people under his care to try to help them get over their fears. And when he was a kid, his parents had acquired like a life-size man made out of wood uh, with like opposable arms and legs and stuff. And like the idea was that you were supposed to be able to talk to this wooden man and like let it know what you were afraid of and like get your fear out or something. And then you'd be like cured. But in, but this thing is the most terrifying thing you've ever seen. Like this, this, this giant wooden man. In and no world is that not terrifying. <laughs> oh, it's so scary. <laughs> and like, and, and, and then of course, like throughout the film, it's really just like a dude in makeup. Like sometimes it is a wooden man, but sometimes it's like they put in a guy in like makeup and stuff. And it's like pretty obvious, but it's like horrifying because like his eyes are real. <laughs> so, but it's like sitting there supposed to be inanimate. You know, it's like a dude in makeup and it's just like all of it is disconcerting all the time. Uh, but in a way that I, you don't even really know if the filmmakers like were intending that level of disconcertion. Um, so I don't know. I, I have a lot of fun with that movie. Do I think it's a great movie? No, but I do think it's really fun. And I will also say there's an adjacent Christmas village uh, and it's out of season, that like in the woods near this cabin that they go to. So like part of the movie takes place at a Christmas village in the middle of summer. Which is like the weirdest thing in the world. Again, also very disconcerting. Just doesn't feel quite right. Um, so I don't know. I just, it, it is a fun sort of thing. And I think it would probably keep your attention even if you were tired, just because of how bizarre it is. All right, sold. I guess I'm, uh, I'm going to be up to 3 a.m. tonight checking out some fear. Excellent. <laughs> Report back. Will do. Will do. I'll, uh, I'll chart the entire thing on Twitter. It'll be Twitter after dark, just me watching the fears. So. All right. I I really don't have anything to wrap us up here with. Uh, like I said, I had chosen Come True and Violation. I will just say quickly that uh, television's Clarice, the Silence of the Lambs TV sequel, is continuing to kind of impress me, which is uh, I honestly never thought would happen. Uh, I, was, I was not on board with kind of what they were doing with that show until, well... I gave it a chance, and now uh, I'm I'm really digging it. It's it's not at all sort of the uh, cookie cutter cop show that I thought they were going to try and you know do with those characters. So uh, yeah, I'm really digging it. And I also caught I don't know if either of you watched The Walking Dead, but um, the last episode that they threw up uh, was an adaptation of one of the more popular one off issues in. Uh, comic book it's called here's negan uh it's basically kind of a showcase for the character and his origin and it may be one of the very best episodes that that show has ever produced it's uh just this fantastic tale that sort of you know there's that line you know the best villains don't know that they're villains you know and uh this is a guy who's been absolutely despicable and horrible but there have been glimmers of uh you know, potential redemption for that guy. And when you finally get his backstory and see where he came from, you realize that, you know, all of the characters that you follow in the show proper, like even, you know, Rick is no longer in the show, the lead character, but you know, they did some really morally questionable things, but you 
sort of go with it because you know where they've come from. You know the hardships that they've put up with, and you you understand the dodgy things that they do, and you sort of forgive it because you know and love those characters because you've spent so much time with them. What's really fascinating about the Here's Negan episode is that they somehow managed to take this guy who is absolutely reprehensible and in showing you where he came from and how he was sort of broken, you realize that, hey, if the show had started out with this guy and had followed him through up until the point that we first meet him and he does something really, truly awful, um, we would probably have stayed on his side. You know, we would have questioned it, certainly, but, you know, it, it wouldn't have fully lost us, I don't think. So I, I sort of love that the show what are we, nine, ten seasons in now? You know, it gets a little rote at times, certainly, but, you know, it can still surprise, and it can still be really engaging and incredibly well-made and be a showcase for some amazing performances. Jeffrey Dean Morgan carries that episode on his back, you know, uh, and Hillary Burton, who plays his wife in the episode during the flashback, she's fantastic as well. And it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's one of the better hours of television I've seen recently. And that is my thoughts on that. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, no, it's really cool. I, I, it's been so long. So I tapped out of Walking Dead a long time ago. I did too. Um, it, it completely lost me. And I'll tell you when it was. It was Terminus. Terminus I... just like sucked out any joy I had from that show. <laughs> like I, you spend like eight episodes watching them. I mean, it's and it just felt indicative of what it would do. And again, I'm not not to like I don't like to complain about shows and stuff, but it was it was more like I felt like the show's sort of mo was we spend a season doing something, we get to that thing, we realize it's not what we thought it was, and then we do something else. And I just felt like it wasn't going anywhere interesting. And then I also felt like it it felt like the character arcs would bend to the will of the plot. So it didn't ever feel like they really knew what they wanted to do with characters. Like, like Rick is a great example of someone who like in season one is one type of character in season two is a different type of character. And then like when they were building up to going to the prison, they started doing this stuff where everyone was like, Oh, we're afraid of Rick. We don't trust him anymore. And then the minute they got to the prison, that wasn't a thing anymore because the writers decided to go in a different direction. It just feels very fickle um, and not true to any one sort of arc. And it just got frustrating after a while for me. I completely get that. It, in a weird way, and here's the thing: this is this is not a charge on viewers at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also not a viewer who says, you know, I'm not a fan of say comic books, and uh, you know, who 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 will roll up the comic and sort of swat a movie's nose with it for not being a perfect adaptation of it. But what's kind of fascinating about having been a fan of the comic book and then watching the show is that. Obviously, the show went into production as the comic book was still going on. It was about halfway through its run, even if that even. And uh, (laughs) looking back on The Walking Dead comic book and where it ended, I I think it's one of the finest comics ever written. Like where it ultimately goes, I think is just brilliant. And you realize that all the choices that were made and all of the arcs that were told are just were it's it's such a perfectly constructed story that feels aimless that feels like it's a bit scattershot but when you get to the end you realize that it's really not 
one of the you know Frank Darabont is the guy who brought the uh, the comic to AMC, and he was there. You know, he was the showrunner for the first season, and one yeah. of his sort of one of the things that he did was say, "Hey, you know, if you like the comic, that's great. We're going to be true to the characters." But we're also going to throw in characters that were never in the comic into the situation, and we're going to take some side roads and whatnot. And it felt like even after he left or was booted off, you know, whatever the story is there, but it feels like all the showrunners that have come in his wake have sort of done the same thing. Hey, let's throw a couple of curveballs. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's kill a character early. Let's take a character that was killed early in the comics, and let's just have them keep on living for another 10 seasons, you know, Uh, depending Mm -hmm. on whether or not they're a fan favorite. And what you realize is, is that watching those changes and then seeing the show deviate and then, you know, the, the, the comic gets to a certain point And when they get to that point, they realize, oh, shit, we can't do this anymore because we killed this character or we zigged when we should have zagged. And then you can almost see in the show like the two or three or five or six episodes of cleanup that they have to do. You know, and juggling they have to do to sort of right the path, you know, as best they can. And it's it's frustrating at times. And yet, again, you know, when the show lands and when it's faithful to the comic or when it's at least faithful to the characters and, you know, it, it doesn't get too mired down in the plot details that have likely been screwed beyond all repair, um, it can it can still be a great show. You know, there have been times that I've completely tapped out. I, you know, after Negan was introduced in, uh, I want to say it was season seven or so, I just got so damn frustrated I gave up. And then that's when they announced that, um, oh, Andrew Lincoln, you know, plays Rick, was leaving the show. And I was like, well, I'll stick around until he's gone, you know, and then I'm mm-hmm. done. Like, I, I have no interest in watching the show beyond that. And damn it if his leaving the show wasn't the sort of boost in the arm that the, 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 the show needed, like it felt like the show came to life again in his absence, because at that point, that's the moment where the show completely leaves the comic books behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they draw some inspiration from it, but they're no longer using it as a blueprint that they fuck around with mm-hmm. uh, at that point. You know, they had to sort of make it their own thing and they had to go their own way. And then at that point, again, yeah, it really does come to life and it becomes kind of fascinating and interesting. Again, and I've been on board ever since. Like, it's just it's just another thing. You know, it's it's completely separate now from its source material. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a sucker for the show. I don't really watch the spinoffs. You know, I tried watching. Was it Fear the Walking Dead? I made it a couple of seasons in and I was just kind of like, no, you know, <laughs> uh, there's sure. another season. It ran for, I think, a season or two seasons called The World Beyond. Um, haven't seen the first episode, like couldn't give a damn, you know, like I just, I'm very curious to see, apparently they are ending the flagship show next season, but they're already talking about doing a spinoff with two of the more popular characters. They're doing like an anthology series set within the same world. And I got to tell you, like after seeing where the comic book went and how perfect that ending is that, uh, the creator Robert Kirkman crafted, I, I have no interest in seeing people just play around in that sandbox with, you know, aimlessly again, like it's just, it's not interesting to me because, mm-hmm. you know, once, once you move beyond that story, then it's just kind of like, okay, all this is now is just a weak Romero rift, you know? So, yeah. So I don't know. And yet I'm, I'm, yeah. I'd be more than happy to change my mind if any of that stuff winds up being great. We'll see. 
Anyway, that's me tap dancing out of my uh, my uh, talk about The Walking Dead. <laughs> okay, so we have, you know, oh my God, Paul, we are still in under an hour. How wow. did that happen? I'm impressed. I'm We're doing great. Too. This is this is because of Emily. She's keeping us on point, and I, I appreciate think so. that. I'm totally doing that. Yes, it's all you. <laughs> it's all you. All right. So I tell you what. Let's go ahead and get ready for the commentary proper now. If for cool. whatever reason this is the first time that you have listened to Hammer Pub, the way this works is we're going to do a countdown. Start of five. As soon as we get to one and play, we're going to press play on the movie that we have chosen to discuss this evening, which is. Frankenstein created woman. You are welcome to drink along at home or just, uh, you know, let's be honest. You're probably not even going to watch this as a commentary. Anyway, you're probably just going to listen to it as a podcast and that's completely fine. We love you anyway, folks out there in your cars or at home. Paul, where do you think people listen to us the most? Cars. I'm thinking cars. Well, I'm thinking cars is going to work, you know, that kind of thing. That makes sense. All right, let's go ahead and cue it up. Is everybody here ready? Ready. All right. Ready. Are we? Are we all? I'm. I'm gonna go ahead and take a wild guess here. We are all watching the Scream Factory Blu-ray, right? Yes. No. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not mean to put you on the spot. I thought. I, I thought. I misunderstood. I thought you had it. You mentioned it earlier. Okay. Then. No, I am watching the Millennium Blu-ray. Is that- <gasps> oh, that is fantastic! No, no, no. That is. Uh, I actually own that one too from way back in the day. Heather Wixon who was a previous guest, she actually worked on the marketing for the Millennium Hammer releases, including Frankenstein Created Woman, um, da, 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 oh, Prince of Darkness, Prince of Darkness and there yeah, was she one worked more. on Prince of Darkness, too. So that is cool. I, I own the Prince of Darkness one, but I didn't have uh, the Created Woman one. I missed out on it, sadly. I think Seven Golden Vampires might be the third one that they released. and then Oh, I- yeah, I think you're right. I need to snag that one, though. But I do have those. So, no, Emily, that's a great choice because that is a damn good Blu-ray. (laughs) Such a great movie, too. I can't wait to dive into it. All right, let's go ahead and do the countdown here. We will press play here in five, four, three, two, one, and play. All right, we have 20th Century Fox there. Kind of excited. Although it makes me kind of sad, too, to realize that we're not going to get any more X-Men movies with that opening. Paul, I know yeah. you feel that. Well, I always like when the X is left at the end. You know, like it fades down and only the X is there. I love that we're starting this uh, Frankenstein created woman commentary by discussing the X-Men Fox opening. I don't know already already off to a solid start. <laughs> no, no, I will. Paul, you know what? Usually you are tasked with keeping us uh, in line. I'm going to try and be that guy tonight because I got to tell you, this is my favorite Hammer film. It is to me. The best film in the Frankenstein cycle, which, along with Brides of Dracula, is my favorite Hammer thing ever. Therefore, Created Woman is my favorite Hammer. And, I don't know, Paul, Emily, let me know what you all think. I thing is, I don't think Frankenstein Created Woman is even the most hammery of Hammer films. This would not be the film I'd send a Hammer neophyte to. But nevertheless, it sort of encapsulates everything that I love about Hammer perfectly, all while telling this really engaging story. I think uh, I think Cushing is at his very best here. I think it's as beautiful as any Hammer film, yet in a non-showy way. Uh, you know, Terrence Fisher, what more can we say? Paul and I sing his praises all the time, but he just directs the living hell out of it. And 
you know, more than anything, I just love that it boasts this really sort of marvelous, almost Jekyll and Hyde tale. Um, and it just, it really pushes the boundaries of what we expect from a Frankenstein story. You know, it just, to move it beyond, um, you know, corpse stitching and resurrection into metaphysics must have been a huge swing for Hammer at this point in their filmography, but it's one that I think just really, really pays off. And like I said, it's also, it's also my favorite version of Cushing's Frankenstein. I, you know, I mean, I... I do appreciate his overall arc in the Frankenstein cycle. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think it's fantastic. But if I'm being honest, I would have also, I would have been fine if he had just stayed at this one note for the rest of the series too. Uh, that might be heresy for Paul, but uh, <laughs> but and I just you know, and I'll shut up here because I'm 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 taking the floor for far too long at the beginning of this episode. But I'll just say that I love that maybe more than any other movie in the history of Hammer, this one feels like such a tragedy you know you really believe in the central relationship you're you're horrified and heartbroken when those characters are torn apart and then you sort of invest again in the revenge aspect until it goes so very very wrong but i just i my hat's off to this movie i i just grin ear to ear every time i watch it i think it's brilliant i agree (laughs) No, I, I think, Sorry, I'm um, watching this guy get his head cut off. But fine. I agree <laughs> too. <laughs> well, and like, and we can talk about this beginning just really quickly because we we haven't really talked about it specifically. One, I love that it opens with a guillotine, hearkening back to sort of the end of Curse and the beginning of Revenge. Um, so there's no way that there wasn't an intention to call to mind the memories of that that sort of image to open the film, and then it carries us into. Um, sort of a fairy tale setup uh, that has nothing to do with the Baron. Um, and I think that sets the tone for the remainder of the film where you have this really sort of beautiful, dark fairy tale nature. And, you know, Fisher always liked to say he made what he made was fairy tales for adults. And I think this movie really embodies that on a level that even some of the other films didn't necessarily, especially his other Frankenstein films. Um, and I just, I love the look of that opening, sort of that it's ethereal, it's kind of otherworldly, um, the, the purple flowers against the backdrop, everything about that opening is just kind of eerie and different. And it even kind of has like some Witchfinder general vibes. Um, and it, it sets up Hans as kind of the main character, um, which is something that Frankenstein's going to exploit as he steps into the story. Um, so I, I think it's, it's such a great opening to a movie that's going to challenge the expectations of what a Frankenstein film might be. Um, I don't know what are you, I, Emily, what, what's your sort of uh, relationship with this movie? How, like when was the first time you saw it? Well, you know, what do you kind of, what, what's your thoughts walking in? So I am fairly new to a lot of um, the Hammer catalog. I've seen a few movies here and there, but it's something that I'm kind of diving into with a little more earnest now. Um, I spent the past year in quarantine falling in love with a lot of old Vincent Price flicks. And um, that's kind of leading me into um, really getting a true appreciation for Hammer. Um, So the first time I saw this, despite owning the disc for like a gazillion years, uh, was last week. Nice. (laughs) I finally watched it in preparation for this. And I think... um, The only other Hammer Frankenstein movie that I had seen 
so far was Revenge. The one that's on that Mill Creek box that everybody bought like two months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's is right. That right. Okay. So, um, yeah, just given the place that this one goes and just the way it starts out where we're not as focused on on the Baron as I kind of expected us to be. And we spend so much time looking at this, this love story blossom and get screwed over kind of again and again. Um, it really gave it a different vibe than I was expecting. And I really liked that about it. It like from the outset, we learned that this is an emotional movie and we know that, you know, bad things are going to befall these innocent characters and there's nothing we can do to stop it. So it's going to be a tragic movie. And then somewhere in all of that, it's also going to be a Frankenstein movie. Yeah, that that's a really good point. And I like I like the word innocent in all of this. Like Hans especially, right? And even to the point where like his costume is the same as a man as it was as a boy. Like literally yeah. wearing the exact same outfit that just like grew up with him as if he's Bart Simpson or something. Like it's just always on his body and kind of morphing with him as he goes. Um and and again like it's it's like a promise that at the opening of the film he sees his father hung and you get the you know it's like that's going to happen to him. <laughs> it's like it's like a guaranteed thing like he's seeing his future. Um and and that movie. again feels so much like a like Grimm's fairy tale and less like a hammer movie. Um which is even more shocking given that this was when it like when it came out because this was when Hammer was shifting away from these types of Terrence Fisher films, you know, it was becoming more salacious in some ways, you know, the, the late sixties, the, the audiences were changing. What they wanted was different. Um, and this was a movie that was initially conceived in like 1959. This was supposed to follow uh, revenge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it was, um, they got the idea with the movie that was paired with Quatermass two. The uh, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, but a French film that was called And God Created Woman, which was sort of like a science fiction uh, Frankenstein S story. And then so they were originally pitching this as and then Frankenstein Created Woman. And it was going to be the third one they made. But that was when they signed the deal with Universal Studios and got the rights to the original look of the monster. And so they decided, oh, well, we're going to we're going to go with that iconic look and and do something that's more hearkening back to the U.S., you know, 30s version of Frankenstein. And they shelved uh, this version of it. So it's kind of a miracle that it exists at all. <laughs> wow. You know, it's funny. I was uh, reading a book called Hammer Frankenstein by uh, Bruce G. Hallenbeck. I'm going to reference it a lot during this episode, probably, but. Uh, yeah, the uh, the movie that it was meant to riff on, uh, you're right, they sort of put it on ice, but afterwards for the fourth film, when they decided to revisit the franchise, at that point they had already partnered with 20th Century Fox, and there's this funny story where the Fox studio had uh, Daryl Zanuck. Um, he'd gotten wind of what the earlier project was going to be and the sort of uh, weirdly kind of sexual connotation of... Uh, you know, having a riff on, you know, uh, title-wise at least, on this old Bridget Bardot film, uh, you know, might be. So 
He, quote, enthusiastically endorsed the sort of revised shortened title of Frankenstein Created Woman. He sort of gave the thumbs up to uh, its production, and then off they went to go to make it. And uh, apparently the original take on the movie, it was meant to be kind of a riff on uh, an unmade Tales of Frankenstein episode, uh, which, I mean, Tales of Frankenstein, of course, was... uh, it was a television series that was meant to get off the ground. They had written several episodes of it, or at least outlines, but they only got as far as making the pilot, and it ultimately wasn't picked up. It had a, I think you can find on, Paul, tell me if I'm wrong about this. I'm not certain that it's made it to disc yet, like any of the Scream um, Factory releases. I... I think it got a DVD, or has it popped yeah, up on a disc? It, it might be on one of the discs. I'd have to double check. I, parts of, Scenes from it are. And some of the making ofs and things like that. And uh, actually, I think in, uh, you know, those like Hammer TV show episodes they put on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure there's clips from it in the Frankenstein one of those. Nice. Um, I think um, it's possible that the entire episode might be on, I think I might have caught it on YouTube once. I, I, think, really it is, I think it is on YouTube. Yeah, dodgy quality. It but it is, it's kind of fun. It's an interesting little curio. Uh, it stars Anton Differing as lead character. But anyway... Uh, Frankenstein Created Woman was initially drafted as being kind of a riff on one of the unmade episodes called Story Number One. And uh, from Hallenbeck's book, he gives the synopsis as being the following. A young man named Peter finds himself on the grounds of Castle Frankenstein, where he meets a strange, emotionless girl. The Baron appears and ushers her inside the castle. Peter questions the villagers, but meets a wall of silence. He comes to the conclusion that Lisa is being held prisoner. Breaking into the castle at night, he watches in secret as she is chastised by Frankenstein, who raises an arm to strike her. Peter rushes to her aid, but she remains impassive. The Baron promises Peter a reward if he can elicit any kind of emotional response from Lisa. Peter declares his love for the girl, but in return, she picks up a scalpel and stabs him in the shoulder. She flees from the room, laughing maniacally, but trips and tumbles to her death down a flight of stairs. Frankenstein explains that he created Lisa in his laboratory, and although physically perfect, she had, quote, no heart, no emotions, no soul, and the vacuum was filled with pure evil. A sadder and wiser Peter takes his leave of the castle. So, yeah, that's that's sort of the base story that uh, Tony Hines used to sort of draft his script, which, uh, you know, he kind of fused that tale with his own interest in metaphysics. And uh, I don't know, do either of you see much in the way of that original tale on evidence here in the final film? It, it seems like probably with each subsequent draft, he must have gotten further and further away from, you know, the the sort of source material, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I'll, my my thought on it is it's I think it's there. I think some of that stuff is there. Uh, certainly the the concept of distilling the essence of a person. I mean, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Right? It's a pretty freaking heady idea. Right. And it and it tracks so well with Terrence Fisher's milieu you know like everything he was trying to do was building towards that i mean you look at two faces of dr jekyll you look at phantom phantom of the opera these are movies that are dealing with the human soul what does it mean can it can it be saved can it be salvaged can irreparable damage be done to it this is sort of like a person who you know i find it really fascinating that the only time that someone's actually resurrected really in this movie 
uh, on screen is is Cushing himself at the beginning of the film. <laughs> yeah. And then when he stands up, instead of like celebrating, like that act would have been the culmination of the other films, right? Like like him being resurrected from death and being normal and fine and like it being that easy. And in this movie, he's so blasé about it. He's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm back to life. But like, where was my soul? Like, like Now he's much more interested in what that represents and it's becoming far more existential. Um, and, and I think that one shows that this is a man who will never be satisfied with, with what he's doing. He just won't ever reach that pinnacle that he has set for himself. And two, I think uh, similar to what that episode was sort of getting at is that, you know, mankind is not meant to understand uh, sort of, the inherent essence of one's being. And it's not something that you can really capture. It's something that you sort of just are. And if you try to mess with it, um, you're only going to cross boundaries that are going to cause more pain and suffering and, and are not going to answer any questions for you. Like you think they might, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And it is curious, you know, given the character that we've seen in the three prior films, that this is a man now who believes in the soul. Uh, although I don't know, I still don't know that he believes in the soul in any sort of, I think using the word soul is just a word that he applies to whatever energy or life force he plans on capturing and transferring. I don't think it's anything. I, I, I can't see him necessarily buying into any sort of Judeo Christian concepts. You know what I mean? Given the yeah. man that he was before, not that there's any sort of, I mean, there is a continuity, but at the same time, there is there is a line later in this movie where he says something like, uh, you know, the Thorley Walters character, Hertz, uses the word magic. And mm. Cushing, as Frankenstein, replies, you know, uh, magic is whatever we don't understand. And, you know, until we do, or something like that. And I think, you know, that that must be true of his opinion on what the soul is, I think. You know, it's... I agree, yeah. He... Well, and add to that, like when he's talking about what happened to the soul versus what didn't happen to the soul after he was revived, he doesn't make any kind of reference to, you know, did it go to heaven? Did it go to hell? How long until it could go to those places? He just knows that it still exists and it could be reawakened within his body, recombined with his body. However, he's looking at it. He's looking at it as more of a scientific entity. Yeah. Well, and, and he, what's interesting then too, is in, in most of the other films, he's not very interested in getting to know somebody and, and sort of nurturing who they are, uh, to understand them. But in this movie, it, like his aim sort of necessitates that he is more observational and, and nurturing sort of an inherent, maybe even a goodness to the personalities that are around him. Uh, cause it's the only way he'll be able to identify, a soul and position himself to sort of capture it and potentially transport it. Um, and I think that that puts the, the Baron in a position that he's not ever in, in any of his other, uh, other movies. I just want to take a second here to note that in the entire canon of hammer, there are some pretty despicable characters, characters that we don't like monsters, certainly oh, you know, yeah. horrible men and yeah. whatnot. I don't hate any other character 
in awe of Hammer the way that I hate these three sons of bitches here. Oh, yeah. I hate them with like a roaring fire that burns deep within me. I despise these bastards. They they are the worst. They are the um, absolute worst. In my notes, <laughs> I refer to them as proto droogs. Oh, totally. Where's Alex? Yeah, that's a good call. Well, and like in the script, they're the children of like the mayor and the police chief. Like each one of them is the child of one of the main sort of rulers of the town. So like later and the judge. So like later when the one guy is sort of like giving his story to the judge in the trial scene, that's actually supposed to be his son. But, But we're never told that. And that makes that sequence so much more frustrating, right? Because, like, everybody's just... And that's why the police chief is so, like, coy about everything when they're, you know, because they just trust these guys. And that's why they never get in any trouble, because they're they're the direct lineage of those people. I just in this town, they were just rich douchebags. Right. Well, they're that. But too. now they're rich, connected douchebags. <laughs> well, and, and like... And again, leading into the fairy tale nature of the story, it's like this is a town that I can, for for all intents and purposes, has like eight people living in it. Uh, you know, it's like there's <laughs> nobody in this town. Um, but that also makes everything feel like a little bit more stylized and again fairy taleish, right? Like every there's there's a couple of chief personalities, but yeah, these these guys are as bad as guys like this get in these types of films. And it's a shame all of that stuff was cut. And I was doing a little bit of research. Like, apparently this was a relatively frugal production by Hammer standards, even in the mid-60s, you know, by virtue of the fact that the evil of Frankenstein had sort of underperformed. But as a result, Hein's original script, which was apparently quite wordy, you know, large swaths of dialogue and, you know, chunks of story were sort of removed. Uh, The entire resurrection sequence where Hans's soul is put into Christina's body that was removed, which is amazing considering that, you know, they promoted the movie on the basis of like these great stills that they took of Cushing and Susan Denberg and this amazing sort of like bandage bikini thing, you know, that was one of the images that really pushed the movie and you can still see it on some of the posters and whatnot. Paul Denny, who created uh, Batman the Animated Series or at least worked on it, did an amazing image online that's well worth seeking out and, uh, if you get the chance. But anyway, I digress. But anyway, it's just amazing that all of that stuff was sort of trimmed back and cut from the movie, you know, so late in the game as it were. And uh, I think they said that the... I think the budget for this was something like 140,000 pounds, which was not a whole lot. And yet watching this movie, I mean, even though all that stuff would have been cool and we know about it in hindsight, the movie doesn't really suffer for it. I don't think, you know, who knows how hard Fisher and company had to work to make it all feel of a piece and not feel like it was wanting for anything. But, you know, again, I mentioned that this is my favorite hammer movie. I think it's pretty perfect as is still. Well, this was, in in many ways, um, one of the things that began the end for Hammer. I mean, obviously, Hammer would last another decade, but this this and Mummy Shroud were the last two films shot at Bray. Um, they were out of money. Bray was too expensive. They couldn't afford it anymore. Um, and it's sort of interesting that, again, I, I think this movie's a miracle in a lot of ways, um, because it's very much a golden age Hammer movie. Uh, 
post golden age when they no longer and I don't and 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 yeah they didn't have a lot of money yeah they trimmed back but again Fisher ma- did something really special with this with um, Anthony Hines script which was a, a, a you know I've n- I haven't read the actual script but it's a from watching the movie it's a great script um, and I think like it just shows you what the kind of talent the hammer was able to foster even as things were declining. But after Bray, it became more and more challenging to give those sorts of auteurs free reign in the same way that they had even in a movie like this. But he does really smart things with a low budget. Like, again, I think the fact that there are not that many people populating the movie make everything feel more sort of like on a on a stage in, in, a, in a sense of importance that kind of lends itself to the fairy tale nature of the story and i think you know the way that like le- like a few leaves kind of blow about um kind of giving you an autumnal feeling rather than you know giving us some sort of backdrop that's more explicit um makes the movie feel more sparse and sort of eerie and empty in some ways which which lends itself to the nature the fleeting nature of of death and the soul that the movie's dealing with Paul, I agree with all that, but I'm also just sort of wrapped up in the movie because one of those bastards got his head slashed open, and I can't help but just appreciate that. Can we talk about Can we talk about Susan Denberg for a second? Like her performance Let's. in this film. Let's get that. She's marvelous. She's so good. Yeah i I love her. I so I actually think this is one of the best, most sympathetic performances in all of Hammer, for sure. Whether or not, you know, the movie's the best Hammer movie, I think this is one of the best performances. Um, And, you know, people kind of give it a little bit of a hard time because um, all of her dialogue was looped uh, by a different actress because she had a really thick Austrian accent. But I think her performance is really defined by her physicality and her mannerisms. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even a very subtle emotional glance carries with it a lot of unspoken emotion. Um, And that is not always the case in some of these movies. (laughs) You could watch her performance in this film. You could mute it. Yeah. And not hear her voice. And just from watching her face, the subtlest ticks and changes, the raise of an eyebrow, you know, the, the hint of a smile that never fully comes uh, just her body language. You're absolutely right. Like her physicality, whether she was dubbed or not, she gives an amazing performance. And it's, yeah. you know, it's interesting in reading about it that casting her in the first place, her, um, she was born, I believe, in Germany, raised in Austria. Real name was Dietlinda Zechner, uh, which Paul, even saying that name, reminds me of the lost episode of Hammer Pub where I ranted farm 3D reviews at you in German while I was drunk. Yeah, we don't have to relive that. <laughs> yeah, my finest hour uh, lost the time. But, uh, and you I'm know, so but... disappointed about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but the casting of Susan Denberg was seen as, as a bit of a risk because, you know, she was she's obviously beautiful. You know, she was, um, it looks like it was Playboy's Playmate of the Month for August 1966, according to the book. And, you know, Shirley Hammer was kind of pursuing the discovery of like a, a another Ursula Andress or Raquel Welch. But 
prior to this, Denberg had only been in one other movie, which was called um, An American Dream, or <laughs> the UK title, which is far better, was See You in Hell, Darling, uh, with Janet <laughs> Lee, and she was in a couple of television things. That's she a did pretty a good title. <laughs> See like You it. in Hell, Darling. I love it. Um, but, you know, here, you know, so she was in one movie in a bit part. She did a couple of television things, including Star Trek. Now she's essentially being tasked with carrying this film for long stretches and essentially playing a dual role. And, yeah, again, just for my money, I think she was absolutely fantastic in the part. I think she would have had an amazing career ahead of her, but unfortunately it sounds like... I've read it in a couple of places, and I kind of looked it up, and they never talk about it at length that much, but there is sort of... There was worded around this time that she had gotten mixed up with uh, sort of Roman Polanski's entourage, like his group back then and around this time, and she had gotten into drugs pretty heavily, and she sort of uh, fell into depression, and she ultimately just left the business entirely and moved back to Austria. And that was it. That was that was the end of her acting career, which is just deeply sad because you can tell she had so much talent and I can imagine like an alternate universe where she worked for another 30, 40 years and did amazing things because yeah, she's just really, really wonderful. And I, I really like um, her relationship with Hans, you know, it's, it's, it's very sweet in a way that hammer movies don't typically explore. Like it's, it's very um, authentic, you know, you, you really, I, I think the love that they share for one another uh, permeates the narrative in, in such a way that it makes everything feel more impactful and weighted, you know, because you really do feel like these people care about each other. You know, they're, they're love they're the sex scene that's sort of in this movie, I guess, in a lot of ways implied is like very, artistically done you know it's it's not salacious at all it's not titillating it's it's romantic it's it's an expression of their love and that makes what ends up happening with um the sort of three evil dandies that that stalk the town at night and how they sort of ruin that moment which is coming up uh all the more horrific you know and evil in what they're doing yeah and i think added to that just the way she plays the character, you see an immediate comfort with Hans that she doesn't have with other people. She's not fully comfortable in that she still kind of hides the side of her face uh, with her hair, but she speaks so easily with him and she doesn't, she's not as physically rigid as she is around the other douchebags. And just, you see that there is a connection between the characters beyond just the dialogue that's happening. Yeah. Very true. And, and, and there's a sense that she feels it's like one of the, like, especially, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Well, here with them sort of laying in bed. Yeah. She's still obviously struggles with sort of how, how she appears, but it's, it's juxtaposed against a sense of comfort she feels with him, but it's the outside world. And, and again, specifically these three evil motherfuckers that are, sort of terrorizing her and you know this song they sing was actually improvised on set it was not scripted no they made it, yeah they fucking made it up and that makes me almost like hate i'm like you jerks 
like one of the meanest things you do in the movie. And it was not scripted. They just and were like, you were just so perfect at it. These guys yeah. were doing bags in life. Well, and Fisher actually encouraged, he was one of the few directors, especially in Hammer's stable, that would encourage improvisation because he didn't storyboard anything. He he would literally go to set and figure shit out. I don't know how really? he managed to yeah, and he was such a good director. But what he would do, he did a lot of rehearsals. So he would let basically what he would do is he would let the actors go do the scene and see how they utilize the space. Then he would do his setup. So he would actually just let it play out like a stage play first. And then he would he would play into how the actors wanted to use the space they were in. And that's how he would create his shot compositions. That's awesome. Yeah, he, he was a really interesting director. I, I, I honestly think, and, and Jinx is right, anyone that listens to this show, I say this like every episode where we talk about Fisher, but Fisher deserved, deserves to be mentioned alongside like the great horror directors. Like when we talk about anybody, like if we talk about Sam Raimi or Wes Craven or uh, Alfred Hitchcock, like we deserve, we should be talking about Terrence Fisher. I, I I think he deserves to be mentioned alongside the big names of horror. I agree, but also ju- it's worth noting if I could last action hero myself into my television, I would do these men violence. <laughs> Oh, I would well, wail yeah. on I mean, them to my yeah, heart. I, I would join you. Can I come? Well, I would. I would the, run there. The other feet. thing, Jinx, about it is like, unlike most villains in movies, these are three guys that I feel like almost anybody could beat up easily. Like these are guys that, like, in a fight, would immediately fucking crumble. Like they're not. That's what's so horrible about them is they 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 have nothing to back them up. They're not like some buff. You know, like they're just these scrawny little idiots that are hiding behind their wealth uh, and status. Right. And, and, and that's what makes, and again, Hammer obviously hates the aristocracy, right? And uh, most villains in most Hammer films have something to do with the aristocracy. These guys are just the most sniveling, shitty representation of that, that Hammer ever did. (laughs) I hate them so much. Oh, they suck. Um, we can talk a little bit about Thorley Walters, I think. I think he, in this movie, deserves a little bit of a nod. Yeah, Dr. Hertz is just the best. I, I love Thorley Walters in this role. I think, I feel like we were almost cheated out of a series of films with Hertz and Frankenstein together. Forget Paul Crimp, Paul. Like I, I know that you and I had mentioned how neat would it have been if Paul had come back in later sequels. How great would that have been? And, and it would have been. Yeah, but I could almost imagine like a buddy cop series with Frankenstein and Hertz. You know what yes. I mean? Yes, yes, yes. Well, and yeah, it's a really interesting thing with um with with Thorley Walters in this movie. And I'm about to sneeze, so I'm going to mute. Pineapple, pineapple, Paul, pineapple. Say it out loud. You won't sneeze if you okay, say pineapple. I'm good. I'm muted. I'm muted. I apologize. And it it was. I was like, if I sneeze into this mic, it's going to be the loudest, most obnoxious thing on a podcast ever. So I need to mute. Um, I feel it's kind of anticlimactic, <laughs> though, if you know that you're going to sneeze and our audience doesn't hear it. Right. Are, are we still I mean, for it? Are, have you, have you oh, sneezed? I did, <laughs> did sneeze. Happen? No, I, I sneezed. I muted like right when I said, I'm going to mute. And I muted. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to like insert a, like a stock sneezing sound, like I'm totally cool with that. Put in the most started. 
Goony sneezing. Yeah, like a really funny cartoonish, like goofy sneezing or something. I don't know. Did Goofy ever sneeze in like a Goof Troop episode? Because that would be kind of had to have, and I bet it sounded like a bicycle horn. Oh, that's what you should do. I'll yeah. bet it's like gore shafter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> thoroughly Walters. Uh, no, he's so funny in this movie, and and his relationship with with the Baron is really interesting, um, because you know usually the Baron has, well, we talked about this before too. Is there's some sort of queer coding within that as well you know we mentioned that was talked about on um what was it the evil of frankenstein episode where we kind of discussed that a little bit yeah how he always has like a young man that's sort of you know very attentive to attentive to him and uh uh sort of willing to go along with whatever is happening and um, always named hans paul yes Here we have this film hans. yet another assistant uh, named hans and there is a young man in this movie as well but thorley walters is really the the right hand man to 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 the baron and thorley really respects him in this film you know and and kind of has an affection for him that i think is absent in the other films and the people that you know, actually typically follow the doctor. And I I think that's something that the Baron in this film seems to kind of like appreciate on some level, even though it's not always on the surface. (laughs) But I I, I do think he, he kind of, kind of likes it. I think he kind of likes having a guy that is sort of, um, you know, affectionate towards him on a level other than just, mad respect for his intelligence and what he's capable of doing. Do you think he would ever call him his friend? Or is that just way too much? I don't know that that the that Peter Cushing's Frankenstein really like truly grasps the concept. Like I don't think he yeah. could have a friend because I don't think he really feels that people can be friends. Like he has he sort of exists as like um like the overman, right? Like, like, like pulling from, uh, like philosophy. Like he kind of, I, I see. I think he sees himself as an ascended being amongst other normal humans. Yeah. I mean, he just sees things how they really are, and other people haven't caught up to that yet. You know, and I, I think he would see friendship as something that is not an actuality, uh, but a sort of you know, shared uh, psychosis that people just kind of enter into. Can I share something a little personal? Go for it. So I think that Peter Cushing's forearms are like freaking hot in this scene. I love the curled <laughs> up look and I love his little wrist gloves, the gloves ending right at the wrist. And then, yeah. <laughs> This is some good costume work. (laughs) That's some good forearm work, if we're being honest. Like, he's holding that gun and he's tense. We got this. Cushing's (laughs) a good looking man. You know, and and he was how old he is in any of his stuff. Yeah. He could easily be 35 or 60. Well, and I think, yeah, I, I always see Cushing as somebody who's just, like, always 45. Like, he's yeah. just, like, from from 1955 through, like, 1975, he was 45 years old. Um, and a handsome 45, you know? Like, like a somebody that really just kind of was ageless and timeless. Um, the, the perfect sort of... 
Like, whenever I think of, if I was going to, and I know he played the character, but, like, when I think of, like, Doctor Who, I think of, like, a Peter Cushing type. Yeah. Peter Cushing that's played Doctor Who. I, yeah, I, I, he played Doctor Who in the, the movie versions, right? Mm-hmm. Which I guess isn't, like, Doctor yeah, canon or something. It's not but, canon because he's human in those, which is a weird choice, but he's still yeah. amazing. Right, right, right. Not to get too off topic. And I'm I'm definitely not, like, a Doctor no Who person i wish i i need to get more into that stuff but um but anyway like i see like he he really embodies that kind of timeless figure uh that sort of commands the screen the second he's on it you know and you know it's weird here that he's gotten to a point in the series where you know he wasn't quite the dastardly villain in the evil of frankenstein if anything he was something approaching almost not heroic, but certainly our hero in the film. He was, uh, he was more empathetic in that movie. More, more of yeah, absolutely, more of an anti-hero in revenge. Certainly, just a straight-up villain in Curse. But by the time we reach him in this movie, he is—he's likable. He's just a—you—you you get the sense that yeah, he's still driven by the same concerns, but he's no longer just dastardly. He's. He even seems like a good man. He experiences regret. You know, the final moment that we leave him on in this movie, you know, he he feels something. And I don't know that that could be said about any other moment in the previous movies where that sort of regret and guilt can be read on his face. And then, uh, you know, of course, he goes to some super dark, horrible places after this. One wonders if, uh, you know, I don't know that they were considering this when they were crafting the films, but I, in my mind it's all down to this movie and where it leads. You know, he tried being a good guy and look where it got him. So why not be a best? Oh yeah. Guy, you know, That's I, the thing. I was actually wondering about that given how, let's see, he, he didn't, he left and didn't play the character for one film. Is that right? Yes, he did okay. the first five films. Uh, so the next one was, uh, must be destroyed. Then they tried to reboot the franchise without him, and they essentially did a comedic, like a darkly comedic riff on the first film, The Curse of Frankenstein, in a movie called Horror of Frankenstein, with Ralph Bates playing a young version of uh, Victor Frankenstein. And that apparently didn't go over well, so <laughs> they brought Cushing back for one final go-round as an older version of the character. So when they brought him back, he didn't continue on you know, a path of redemption or enlightenment. He was just a total dick. Well, there the is a final. The final film has a sort of like old, like a like a old man Frankenstein vibe to it. Like, like <laughs> this is, like he's at the end of his life. Like, like this is it for him. He's he's never he he's now realizing he never really achieved anything. I now what want to all cut for? a trailer for Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Cut to Johnny Cash's hurt, Paul. Dude, you a hundred percent could, and I would, I would probably fucking tear up during it. Like it would probably work on me because I love the Frankenstein weird ass continuity that I just assigned to it in my brain. That like him like just was, slow you know, down a shot of him like sawing a limb, and you could have it all. Oh my god! I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna cry right now. I'm gonna cry. Um, but I cry in everything, so and I watched Titanic on Friday, so I'm like all cried out. Let me tell you, uh, <laughs> Rose killed him. Yeah, let's run that out. Titanic, Titanic, super set. Um, but there wasn't any room on that door there for Jack. And she could have tried. 
She practically held his head. They did it on Mythbusters, and she couldn't have had him up there. They proved that that had he gone on the door, it would have flipped over, and she would have drowned. And they 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 even try it, and it starts sinking. They do try it. They try it away, and it's just not possible. I mean, that movie is a perfect movie. It's a great movie. People like to shit on Titanic these days, and I think it's it's a perfect film. I love. Can we just talk about Titanic for the next hour? All right. Anyway, sorry. This is where I piss off Jinx and bring up Rosa. Rosa, <laughs> Paul, all I'm going to say here, and I'm going to let your imagination do the work, is that I personally think that Rose is hanging out with Christine Brown right now. Just throwing that out there. They're pals. Brunch and hell, Paul. Well, you think Ow. Rose is a shitty person? <laughs> you, you, sir, we have words, but not right now. <laughs> this is not the time nor the place. <laughs> to get into a conversation about Rose. Rose is, Rose is amazing. You are, dude, get out of here. That's crazy. That's oh, insane. Jack, let me, let me help you up onto the door for one and a half seconds. Oh, it doesn't work. Just, uh, I'll never let go, Jack, she what says, as so she pushes serious? his head under the water. I'll never let go. Meanwhile, he's like, what movie will you watch it? Dude, you, okay. Look, I can abide some of your crazy ass opinions about things. This. <laughs> This is an unacceptable opinion. <laughs> I'll never forget you. <laughs> you are you are so off the mark in what terms of this. Oh Rose, wait, I have to interrupt us... because we're in the courtroom scene and okay, he has you. no thank time you. for this shit. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for getting us with everyone in the courtroom made me laugh my ass off. Yeah. <laughs> because he has no time. Also, like, where are these people coming from? This town has, like, two people in it, and now all of a sudden there's a jury, and I've never seen these people before. Well, they came from all of the surrounding towns, because a trial is, like, bigger than the Super Bowl. This you know, is you're into that kind of thing. That's true. And and Cushing in this scene is why he's likable in this movie. Like him like mouthing off and being hilarious, like to the <laughs> shitty people in charge is just like, Oh yeah, I like this guy. This guy's great. You know, there's a similar court scene in Revenge of Frankenstein, and while he's definitely more of a villain in that one, like that's the moment when you realize when he's sort of taking the piss out of people that he realizes are probably intellectually well certainly intellectually inferior to him like he is he he's much more likable as a result certainly uh i do love his note about having a doctorate in witchcraft you know the moment <laughs> there is one then i shall certainly have one um yeah it's this is a great scene but I sorry, Jack's still know, drowning. <laughs> it takes a long time. The ocean is deep. <laughs> I will not. I cannot abide people <laughs> shitting on 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 my Rose. Like Rose is perfect, and she died warm in her bed as <laughs> as she was meant to after living a long full life. And Paul, doing all those things that, she, that Jack Dawson helped her, helped her achieve and she, got out of her, her bad situation. With, she with surely... Who I love Billy Zane, but come surely, on. Billy Zane's a shit in that movie. He's a shithead. He deserved to get spat on. In that movie. That, like, that scene where Billy Zane flips the table and like... Oh. Her, I'm like, I'm like, I want to go punch Billy Zane in the mouth. And I love Billy Zane. So that shows you 
Uh, Billy anyways. Zane is a really good actor. <laughs> he was the Phantom. Zane's so good. It, you know, Zoolander. Much like, much like Puppy, he, uh, so he can sense evil. That's why he went after Rose. So, Billy so Zane's the one who brings on the walk-off in Zoolander. Well, she died um, but... warm in her bed because the flames of hell were licking her feet by that point. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> You're going to join me soon if you keep talking like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, what's interesting about this movie is it's not really so it's it, it's not so much about any sort of horror as much as it is about like cruelty. You know, like it's it's very much trafficking in like the cruelty that that humanity can sort of inflict on one another um specifically within like distinctive class differences right and it it kind of harkens back to like some literature stuff and gothic movies like the air aristocracy's cruelty to the average man and stuff like that and it's it's again very terence fishery and not so much, it feels a little less like what Hammer was at the time that it was made. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I just, I absolutely adore You're right. It's not necessarily so much of a horror film, even though horror does enter into it in the final act. But it, it does, you know, maybe more than any, well, you know, certainly Brides of Dracula is up there. But maybe more than any other movie that Fisher had done up until this point. And you noted it at the open, but this definitely does feel like a dark fairy tale. Um, yeah. And I adore so much for that. But just, but at the same time, you know, even for being a dark fairy tale, I think what makes this different is the fact that you drop Frankenstein into the middle of the proceedings. You know what I mean? Like it just, it makes it something entirely different so that it's not a Frankenstein movie. It's not a dark fairy tale necessarily. Like it becomes something wholly different by having those two things sort of spark off of one another. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's true. Paul, you're still angry with me, aren't you? Um, I mean, I, I'm getting over it. I mean, it, it, it was an emotional moment, uh, but I'm I'm working through it slowly. Uh, the sets in this movie, I Bernard just think Ar- that it's uh, it's it's you know, it, don't get me wrong, I love Titanic. I do. Oh I just uh, you're going back to Titanic. Uh, You're not even drinking. You're drinking water. We've reached the halfway point. We're supposed to digress at this point. Emily, I'm so sorry for this. I I hate for how he's acting out while you're on as a guest. He's just just going. Nobody in here is sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just think it's a nice contrast to have had, you know, the one character die an icy death and you know the other character surely met a fiery fate later on i i think that's smart filmmaking jim cameron so you game changer you do you really think she was in a in a position to be making decisions she was out of it she was she was barely cognizant of what was going on she here's what here would be my argument to your argument sir she did not decide not to let him onto the door. He decided not to try to get onto the door. I'm he sorry, Paul. Opted, I, I, no, he I'm, opted to no. sacrifice himself in the hope that it allowed her to live long enough to be rescued by one of the boats. That's that was what happened. So, so why? So why is no it, Paul? On her why, conscience. Why is it, Paul? Then that the. Uh, you know, I, I, DiCaprio, he was a skinny, slight lad back then. They were probably roughly the same body weight at that time. So you tell me, Paul, why is it that the man 
had to be one of the ones to make the decision. Why didn't the woman have any agency, Paul? Because I think she did. And I think she chose to let him die to preserve herself. And because she knew deep down that that relationship was going nowhere. Six months after the events of that movie, had he lived, she still would have broken up with him because it was a one-time fling and he meant nothing to her. That's a fucking lie. That's a fucking lie. And by the way, Jinx, don't you dare try to fucking gaslight me like you just did. Like, like bringing up like how, oh, the woman had no agency. You, you know, this is 2021. I can see through your your bullshit here. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna backtrack a little bit, okay, and and not go down that path. All right, the Patreon is alive and well. All right, and I understand that it's coming for Rose, and I'm not gonna let it get her. That's all I'm saying. I wish Bill Paxton had shoved the old woman into the ocean after the necklace. Well, I don't know. Out of room. <laughs> this is terrible. And I don't know how you sleep at night. That's all I'm saying. But that that's silly fine. little noise she makes when she drops it. Oop. I just wish that Bill Paxton had just rage shoved her right into the ocean. Bill Paxton learned a valuable lesson about what he was doing from listening to her awesome story, as did what? everyone else on that boat. And they no longer I'm pretty sure Bill Paxton would have cheered her for throwing it back in the ocean. Yeah, he would have been like, damn straight, lady. Give it, get, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a metaphor, right? Money, money, it's fleeting. But, you know, memories. It was the mid-90s, I wish he'd booted her ass into the heart of an F5 tornado. Well, there's just no accounting for taste on the Hammer Pub. We've said it before. And it's just true. It's just this time and time again, we prove it. <laughs> Go back to watching season 10 of The Walking Dead while while you complain about things. <laughs> Wait a second. Are you really trying to Walking Dead shame me here? Hey, look. I only because you're coming for Rose. <laughs> that, that's why. I wasn't, no, I, no, I was no, no, no. Hey, no, 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 Ow. just so you understand. Ow. No, 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 seriously, seriously. In all sincerity, I'm not coming for Rose at all. Because she's already dead. Okay, right. You know what? Let's, this is an important scene in the film. We just, <laughs> we just missed Han's death. <laughs> oh, look, somebody about to drown. She's about to drown in like three feet of water. Yeah, and... Like I, I've jumped off of taller things when I was like seven, and I was totally fine. <laughs> but it's a, she was sad, you know. So it's a situation. Yeah. But I'm glad they cut away because can you imagine? You're right. It's not that far of a drop. It's not that deep of water. Like, do you think she landed and then she just bobbed to the top and she was like, "Damn it!" Like, what I happened then? Think Did she hold her own head like, under? Did she? I, I, I she was Jack. Her uh, way to do that would have been like a long shot of her at the top of the bridge jumping and cut before she hits the water. Like, like I think that would have been a more not not to tell Terrence Fisher Fisher how to direct his movies because um, he's I already said he's he's amazing. Uh, but yeah, I do think that that shot was a little bit underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, no, he he, you know, he makes mistakes. It's fine. He's human. Yeah. But um, it, it is interesting, as you pointed out earlier, how much was sort of like excised from the from the sort of moment those two meet their demise to the combination of their souls, you know, kind of jumping to uh, uh, the after effects of that. Like there was a lot in the script that took place in between these two sequences. 
Paul, I acknowledge what you said, but I also just wanted to note at this very moment that Emily, you're right. His uh, his forearms are considerable, considering he's like such a slight guy. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know how he does it, but it's magic. <laughs> if we do if we do episode titles, this episode should be called Peter Cushing's Forearms. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a man who would have found a way up onto a floating door. He could pull himself up there. Entire boat for thinking. You're just not going to let this go. <laughs> uh, I um. I'm sorry, Paul. I I like that. I adore all of his science equipment. That has <laughs> a logical way to equate this to anything. It's just this looks sciencey. Stick it in the shot. Because that's how it should be. This movie, almost more than any of his other one, any of the other Frankenstein, they've all they all have the little like bobbles and and electric things. But this one ventures into and and Jinx, you said it earlier, like magic. It really feels like he's wielding magic in this movie. Yeah. And again, I think that lends itself to the fairy tale nature of what's going on. Um, like the metaphysics and the 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 pseudoscience that is not even remotely attempted to be explained, but we accept it because we're because the way Cushing delivers the things that he's saying, he he has such conviction that we just accept what he's saying and we just believe that he could do it. Yeah, and what an amazing actor! Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think it also sells him as the smartest guy in the room because he's the only one who understands what is happening with all of these gizmos. Everyone else is just perplexed as we are, but he's like totally on it. That is so true. Yeah, he... Oh, funny thing, uh, that body on the table is, is the guy who played Hans... And he did this for extra pay, he did three days of shooting where his head was on a thing like below the table because they didn't want to pay for a fake body to be made. <laughs> and it was cheaper for them to pay him overtime than to pay for the effect of building the body. No. So he got like, three days of overtime to just lay there on the table and like put his head below it. But he said he kept getting like horrible headaches and passing out. <laughs> no, what, oh my God, what an was, angle like, rushing to his head. head. Yeah, like, that's actually him. That is horrifying. Um, the neck problems that man must have had in later life. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the hammer way, man. Do it, do it on the cheap, and figure out a way to get the actor to say yes. <laughs> I'm horrified that it costs more to pay for a, a fake body than it does. Yeah, because they were going to build a cast of his body. The cost of that was yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and back then, shooting hours were like, I mean, they were like nine to five. Like it was, it was like an eight-hour day, and then you went home. Like they didn't. it's not you know the production and the unions were so strict that if they were even going to do like if you were going to keep the the you know the the people there like the crew there to like six you had to call the union at minimum like six hours before so if you didn't call the union by noon to request a a overtime day till 6 p.m you could not do it Wow. And if you went beyond overtime, beyond six o'clock, you had to get permission more than 24 hours ahead of time. So I like that. when the day ended, it ended no matter what was going on. When five o'clock hit, they went home. 
I love that filmmaking at that point over there that that it was a nine to five job like bankers hours that's amazing job i mean you you listen to some of these interviews it literally feels like blue collar workers Mm -hmm. you know and but they had a familial element about it and they loved what they did uh and and they had these great relationships but they they didn't have it was different than hollywood too you know like british filmmaking was a little bit more you know, it was it was classier as you would think it would be. <laughs> you know, it's funny that reminds me just talking about it being like a work day. There was this. Ah, let me see if I can find it quickly. Um, I'll flip to the chapter here and explain why. Um, just something that Cushing said reminded me of that very thing. The fact that it was very sort of. I don't know, maybe when mythologize, like the making of movies and what must happen, you know, on set. And it just, it, there's something about the way he talked about it. Like, you're right, Paul. It, it sounded like very much blue collar work, you know, just driving to work in the morning and, you know, you put in your day's work and you come back and that's it pretty much. And, uh, you know, you talked about this was one of the final, this was certainly the final Frankenstein shot at Bray, but this was one of what the last two or three movies that were shot at Bray. Period. This was the second to last one. Uh, the Mummy Shroud was the last one shot at Bray. Okay, so from uh, Bruce Hallenbeck's book Hammer Frankenstein, end of the uh, Frankenstein Created Woman chapter. <clears throat> Peter Cushing recalled what a unique experience it had been working at Bray. Quote, when I used to live in Kensington, it only took 45 minutes to get there, and we had the road to ourselves. No one at all used the road at 7 a.m., there were no motorways, and you used to arrive at what was a large country house by the river, and this was Bray Studios. In the very first picture we did there, The Curse of Frankenstein, there was a bedroom scene, and we literally went up to the bedroom of the house and used the bedroom. For dining room scenes, we went down to the dining room. Uh, I just, I love that. I, I love the, yeah. the movies the 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 films that we herald as classics were made in just such a you know a simple sort of you know um unaffected <clears throat> way i i adore that yeah well and then bernard robinson's magic of like transforming these sets that we've seen 25 times into different things for all these different movies it's amazing that we can watch these films and feel like they take place in different locations when most of them are at the same manner, you know? This is such a ghoulish shot. I love it. it I is. know. If I woke up and these two guys were leering at me, I'd be so freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Thorley Walters looks like a deranged Santa who just shaved his beard. <laughs> he like, he like, yeah, like a drunk Santa who's like, I just <laughs> shaved my beard. <laughs> I, it reminds me the the looking up shot. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Inglorious Bastards, like that final mm-hmm. moment. You know, almost mm-hmm. like they've just carved the swastika into Susan Dimberg's forehead. And uh, <laughs> could you imagine Peter Cushing being like, that. "I think I just made my masterpiece." <laughs> That's actually a really good comparison, and I have to believe that Tarantino is a Hammer fan. I would. I've, never, so. I've <laughs> never heard him talk about Hammer, um, but I would be shocked if uh, although if he I'm, wasn't a fan. He, you're right. The fact that he hasn't talked about them at this point and considering the rest of the stuff that he has talked about yeah, does concern me a little bit because when he talks up Psycho 2, which as well he should because Psycho 2 is amazing. Psycho uh, 2 is amazing, yeah. It, Richard sure. Franklin is incredible and that is one of the best horror sequels that the genre ever had. But in talking up Psycho 2, he kind of pisses on Hitchcock a little bit. 
And so part of me is afraid to hear what he thinks of Hammer if he hasn't mentioned it at this point. Because I, I adore Tarantino, and if he started talking smack about a Hammer, I just I don't know what that would do to my fandom. <laughs> well, I think Tarantino is just like a very honest, off-the-cuff kind of person. So when he talks about things, like, I'm sure he has nothing but the utmost respect for Hitchcock. But, like, it, it probably comes off as flippant, you know, when he's when he's discussing psycho or something really you know well loved uh, uh and famous because tarantino's more a off the beaten path movie fan you know mm-hmm. like when you hear him on pure cinema it's like every title he throws out is something pretty obscure um you very rarely hear him talk about big famous movies and a lot of what hitchcock did was big famous movies but for every huge film that hitchcock has that everyone knows he's got five that are not that well known you know he made how many hit movies did hitchcock make like 120 something like it was something insane whoa like, really yes oh yeah I'm, like because he was well in hitchcock uh, was a blue collar british filmmaker like he worked for a studio and they would just assign him movies and he started making movies in like 1920 I mean, he made his first like 19 movies, 19 or 20 movies were silent films. And then I knew that. I knew that he had like a, a, not a pre career, but just a career that. Yeah, like a, like a, yeah, and not all of them are, uh, gosh, and and far be it for me to criticize Hitchcock, but I, I, not all of them are masterpieces, but a few of them are. And you can really see like, um, oh gosh, what's the one that, um, um, man, I am not on it tonight. There's one that Criterion put out that is one of his silent films from the uh, the 20s that is uh, amazing. Um, and it's it's uh, sort of like a a movie where uh, it's like people in an apartment building. Oh, The Lodger. The Lodger. A story of London fog um, and like there's a killer and the killer lives above them and the people in the apartment are sort of like starting to question, you know, whether or not that this person's the killer. And Hitchcock was trying to think of a way to show them thinking about what the guy is doing in his apartment above them in a silent scenario because there's no sound. And so what he did was he 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 had the studio build a room with a room on top of it with the glass floor so he could fade from the people in their apartment looking upwards at the ceiling to the glass so you could see everything in the room above and then the guy like pacing. So there's like these really awesome shots where they look up and then you can see like the 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 ceiling disappears and you can see like shoes like this man like pacing above them oh, and wow. like giving you this impression of what they think he's doing and this shit was done before anybody was doing stuff like you know he was just so creative um and created such really interesting visual language like without sound and you can just tell like okay this guy's going to go on to create something really special um but that movie's available on Criterion disc i really recommend checking it out uh, Paul, but, I counted while you were talking, and I was listening, and I was paying attention. But I apologize. No, 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 no you're good. I counted a uh, <laughs> 77 feature films, which is just absolutely mind-boggling to me. 77, yeah. I, he well, and I was probably adding in like his shorts and some of the stuff he did for 
television and like his IMDb credits are like insane. Um, I, I have so much to catch up on now, and I've well, seen a and, lot like, of Hitchcocks. I feel like I've seen a lot of Hitchcock movies, and I've probably seen like thirty or forty. So that means that like I've seen half, <laughs> and I feel like I've seen a lot, you know. But like it's just one of those things. Like he made so much stuff um, that it's hard to catch up. But I mean, so anyway, like getting back to the point, like I'm sure. Tarantino's a fan of like a lot of those Hitchcock movies. He probably just has less interest in something like a psycho, which is so well known, you know, like I think he's, he's the guy who's more interested in showing people stuff they've not seen. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. I don't know. I just, I, I, there was a hint of dismissiveness to it. And plus, you know, this is also a guy that, you know, he kind of pissed on Craven's contributions to Scream, which is just mind-boggling to me. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I love Tarantino. I don't fully trust his opinion on certain things sometimes. But That's I got to say, just to segue back to the movie, we're talking about major filmmakers and what they might have thought of Hammer. We talked Tarantino. We talked Hitchcock. Guess who loves this movie? Who? Okay, from Hallenbeck's book again. <clears throat> But the highest praise for the film had already come in 1987 from acclaimed Oscar-winning director Martin Scorsese. The auteur, sorry Paul, the auteur behind such great American <laughs> films as Taxi Driver, The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, and Hugo, chose Frankenstein-Created Woman to screen as part of a national film theater season of his favorite films. Introducing the film, Scorsese, who had considered joining the priesthood before he decided to become a filmmaker, said, quote, if I single this one out, it's because here they actually isolate the soul, a bright blue shining translucent ball. The implied metaphysics is close to something sublime. Interesting. That's, awesome. That's, That's really awesome. cool. And and it doesn't surprise me at all. And it's funny that the book mentions Hugo as one of his directorial efforts because this movie feels very much in line tonally to something like a Hugo, where a movie that's trying to sort of artistically capture the nature of humanity, right? Like, like the essence of that. Um, Hugo, you know, does that through the lens of art and creation. Um, you know, this movie does it in more of a horror lens, um, through like body transmogrification and and sort of uh, uh, more control in that level. Um, but we're getting to the part of the film where we're entering into its proto slasher-ish type of stuff. And I think it's a really interesting turn. And I really like how the lighting and filmmaking style shifts for this portion of the film. Yeah, it's gorgeous. You can, yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that. It certainly does. It, it the the film starts to clue us in on the fact that we are now watching a horror film, which is uh, just marvelous. Look at these the color, candies. the color choices, and and colors pop more. Like in earlier in the film, the way the the way things are lit, like colors are a little more muted. Um, now, like the reds are redder. Um, things stand out a little bit more. The little there's a little bit more of a um i don't know like a like an odd hue to things um that makes things feel a little bit more on edge um you know you, like you know something's coming 
and I, I think that's a really interesting decision he made, sort of putting it together that way. Emily, you were right earlier. There is a lot of wine that is put away in this film. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, this is maybe a silly thing to note, considering you know some of the gru and effects that we have seen on screen up until this point throughout Hammer's filmography. But not for nothing, that is a damned impressive scar that they gave that guy there. Yeah, it's very subtle in, and that's not necessarily what we've come to expect from not just Hammer, but films of this time. Like normally, you know, it should be like a big black line with stitches or something grotesque, and instead, it's just it looks like a scar like that would look. I like it because it kind of mirrors the previous um, sort of marred look of uh, uh, Christina because she had a scar kind of like that. Mm. Um, But for her, it was, you know, it made it to where she couldn't exist in normal society. But for him, it's just something everyone ignores. I also like that it's kind of the fact that it is more understated just highlights the fact that we threw a shit fit after that fight. We came back and killed the bar owner and then we blamed it all on Hans, but really like this guy's fine. He's, Mm -hmm. he wasn't even worth all of that. Yeah. His life's not impacted at all. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, And you're right. Yeah. Like the fickleness of upper crust society And I do love now that he's reached the point, you know, this is, you know, not only is somebody hunting him at this point, not only is he close to his demise, but I love that he is sort of discarded by even, you know, the restaurant, you know, the, the, the little bar, the, the place yeah. that he was attending. So sort of callously boots his ass out the door. You know, it, it feels like the universe is teeing him up for his comeuppance. And I kind of love that. Yeah. I do have a question. Is he cosplaying as Willy Wonka? <laughs> <laughs> I only trip and fall and roll and stand up before her. And she so just takes what do we think about, <laughs> let, let's talk a little bit about Susan Denberg's sort of change because it it's very interesting if you think about it, right? So first off, like the price for her beauty um, or whatever perceived beauty we want to apply to you know, her not having her scar anymore, like whether or not like, cause I would argue like the movie posits that she is beautiful to begin with, but the outside world, you know, is condemning her for, you know, some like her, her scars and whatnot. When in reality, when she's with the person that she and that where there's shared love, beauty is sort of in the eye of the beholder, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, now she looks the way the rest of the world wants her to look, but she's had to give up her memory and her mind to do it. Um, plus there's this sense of like two souls trapped within one body. And for the first time she's using her, womanly wiles in a way that she never would have before um but the duality of her sex meaning there's a man and a woman inside of her suggests that perhaps it's the man that's exerting that sort of well this is what we need to do to get you know another guy to sort of fall for you so we can lure him into a trap uh what are i mean is that what do you guys think about that it was something i'm glad you hit on this because it was something i was 
wondering, since I've only seen this the one time, who is in control here? Mm-hmm. How much of it is her and how much of it is him? And do they share the space at all? Or is it ever only just one person controlling the body? And I put that to you guys who have seen this more than once. How do you interpret this? <laughs> I don't think, and Paul, you might have a different opinion than I, but, um, you know, I the way I took it is that the movie doesn't really exactly give us the mechanics of it because at times it seems like it is him sort of piloting her body. At other times, he is talking to her as though, well, you know, you get to the very end of the movie, we'll skip ahead to that point, you know, she's holding the head aloft as he is talking to her and he is basically telling her that she has done a good job. So if he says that, then like, you know, what is that saying to us? Like, was she just sort of taking cues from him as to what to do? You know, the movie never really quite says it might be a mix of all of those things. You know, maybe they were trying to figure it out as they went along. Who knows? But I, I, in a weird way, and this sounds like I'm I'm apologizing for the movie or I'm trying to cut it some slack that it maybe doesn't deserve, but being honest, and again, this is my favorite Hammer flick, I kind of love the fact that we don't know the quote-unquote rules of what's going on because I think if the movie ever came down solidly and concretely and said, this is exactly what's happening, it would kind of cheapen it a bit. It would lessen it a bit. I like not fully knowing what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. It's There's a layer of richness added to it when, you know, there are these supernatural forces playing around in this one woman's body, but we don't know where one ends and one begins. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and I love the, I mean, this is one of the first times Hammer really does the gender bending nuance thing that it will go on to do several other times in other movies. Um, and I liked that it, I think it's kind of cool that it, that it did that. It was, it was pretty progressive in some ways. I mean, in this movie, it's a lot more subtle um, for me. And yes, I agree. It's, it's ambiguous. It's, it's left up to the in- imagination and I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. I like to think that it is a commentary on the male gaze in a way. And I think, and I'm giving it that credit because of Terrence Fisher. Cause if you look at Terrence Fisher's other films, he, he doesn't use the, the sort of salacious, salacious female form. Other hammer films use it, you know, in, in a more overt way, he typically, it's a lot more tasteful and it's a lot more built into like the, the machinations of the plot and if you look at this movie, like her character throughout the whole film is generally pretty conservative for obvious reasons. Um, and yet we also get one of the most explicit sex scenes in any of Terrence Fisher's films, if not the most explicit. Um, she's, you know, that was a nude scene. We don't see her nude, but she was nude in the filming of that scene. There's not really a scene like that in any other Fisher's films. But again, it's not done to titillate at all. Um, And yet then later in the film, when she is sort of dressed more provocatively, it's when a man is like a, a male soul is occupying her body, whether or not he's in charge. You know, they do still have that scene at the end where when she is killing the guy, you can hear him saying like, kill, 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 kill for me, Christina, you know? Um, 
which suggests that he is sort of guiding her and using the female form as a man would, you know, as, mm-hmm. as a, to get another man who's being, so it, it, it so it's very, very um, sort of, it's undermining that principle of this guy thinks he's being, thinks a woman is, is being what he wants her to be, but it's actually just a man manipulating him by having that woman take that form. Cause a woman would never actually do that for him. <laughs> and yet he's so stupid that he just thinks, Oh yeah, this is finally happening for me as I always thought it should, you know? And, and that's why he goes to his death. So I really do think it's Terrence Fisher commenting on sort of the male gaze and the expectations of a, wealthy man who thinks he deserves that you know like an like sort of an early before there were incels commenting on that culture (laughs) do you think that theme you know uh the male gaze do you think that's better served by the idea of having say hans pilot her body around or by having a man instruct the woman on how she should treat other men and how she should act around other men Ooh, I could think about this for days. <laughs> and someone he that is not a small less. question. It's a big question, and and that's but that's what makes it so subversive, right? Like that's why it's so. I think that's why this movie works so well. Um, oh, we got some giallo lighting there. The the weird red diegetic lighting that's coming from nowhere. I love this moment. This is pure. Oh God, that that red lighting. Oh my God, so good. Mario like Bava conflict. showed up to direct the scene. I guess. <laughs> you know, Bava had to have appreciated Hammer. Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Bava didn't Bava cite that Terrence Fisher was an influence for him? I'm almost positive. I At don't some point know he that, about but... Fisher. That would make all the sense in the world. I love that moment, the big reveal. I love that it doesn't... This is so great. Yeah. And I love the chopping wood, the the smash cuts of that is great. But the it's big so reveal bad. when she steps out of the darkness... You know, any other movie would probably end with her walking into her close-up. And that would be, you know, interesting enough. I love that she just keeps moving beyond the camera. She moves into her close-up and she keeps stalking forward. There's something that just makes it so eerie and creepy because of that. Yeah. Terrence Fisher well, knew that is direct. The horror the horror in this movie, as we said before, it's it's subtle and it's provocative. Um it, it there is not a lot of explicitness. Like when we see the attacks, we cut away. There's a lot of match match action cuts to other things that are innocent, right? Especially like her interaction with Thorley Walters and things like that. Um, so a lot of a lot of shadow, a lot of striking hues of color, um, and it it becomes again a, a fairy tale, comic booky, cautionary tale of what it is to not only uh, undervalue life in general, but to disrupt the natural order of life, um, which is the grander sort of thematic that is running through all of the Frankenstein films. I do love that we seem to be on the cusp of a traditional universal scene. Like these people are not far from pitchforks and torches at this point. 
No, and the Baron's just pissed off that they interrupted his work. Yeah, not <laughs> frightened at all. Fucking like... dare you. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. He's like, first off, where are you people coming from? There's only eight people who live in this town. <laughs> you have no business telling me what to do. <laughs> I don't know half of you. Yeah. What that guy's got like a twig, you've got a shovel. What are you trying to do here? There's no sort of consistency to your weaponry. Like, what I don't even understand what your end game is. There's a marvelous, I don't know if it's this scene, I think we might have already missed it, but there's this marvelously bitchy moment with Cushing where somebody asks him a question and he just considers it for about a half a second and then says, No. And walks away. And it's just, he's so brilliant. I don't know. I think we may have already missed it, but it's just, it's this marvelous thing that, and it's an insult to their intelligence. That is what the question is centered around. And the fact that he just takes, you know, maybe a second, you know, any other actor would have just tossed off the no, like just a straight up insult. And that was it. I love that Cushing plays him like, you know, he considered it for a second and then. (laughs) But only a second. Yeah. (laughs) So. Did you guys, one thing that's really interesting to me is like Terrence Fisher always felt that Frankenstein was a more evil character than Dracula uh, because Dracula can't help what he's doing. Dracula is a soulless creature. Frankenstein's a man who chooses to be evil, to sort of disregard his fellow man. So what 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 are your takes on that? No. Um <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I will answer at length after. Emily, what do you think? Um, I think it's an interesting notion because I found myself considering, especially given the the direction this film goes in its um, acknowledgement of the soul, and that's what Frankenstein is focusing his experiments on in this particular film. To me, it felt like okay, he's done the physical experiments. He's done, you know, several movies worth of physical experiments. And now he's gotten on to the more metaphysical stuff. And it's just showing the depths of his obsession. So I think that there is a lot to be played with there in terms of his inability to to back off and to let this stuff go and how he makes that choice time and time again. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I um, was Fisher only talking about his own sort of like uh, uh, dealings with characters, Paul, or was he talking about the entire franchises? Would you say he was talking about the character of Frankenstein? So, like in general, not specific to only the movies that he had made, but rather that character. I then still, I mean. For as evil as Frankenstein could get, no. I, if for no other reason than simply because Dracula is positioned in those films as being, you know, there's definitely a read on certain vampires that they're just creatures. You know, they they they're animals essentially, and they they have to survive, and so they do what they have to do. That reading doesn't apply to Lee's Dracula to me. Not even in any single film, including horror, which was Fisher's first with the character. I. The, Lee's Dracula is Satan, essentially. Hell, they called one of the movies Prince of Darkness. Like, he he is the epitome of evil. So no matter how bad Frankenstein got in the films, and he gets pretty damn bad, 
to me, he doesn't. He he no, he doesn't hold a candle to Dracula. I don't think. Well, I think the question is if whether or not you view Frankenstein as a true sociopath, right? And and what a sociopath is capable of. I think I think like I think what Fisher was getting at is that he sees Frankenstein as someone who very easily could have been something akin to a serial killer. He just he just sort of targeted his uh, uh, obsessions towards the already deceased. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed see, to taking lives. I don't um, agree with that either because we see him as a young man and we know the sort of demons that drive him and they don't have anything to do with digging around in viscera or hurting people. Like those are just a means to an end for him and the end is the the pursuit. Like I don't right. no, I don't really I don't buy the But he does have sociopathic tendencies. Oh, I mean, he absolutely he, as, we, as we talked about that. Um, now, granted, like you said, he's not uh, exacting that on his fellow man in the same way. But there are things like in Revenge when he's experimenting on homeless people. I mean, that's pretty fucked up. And like, there, there's a lot of stuff he does. But it's not. Um, out of, and it's not ever as out of a vampire. A sense of uh, yeah, but it's still horrible. <laughs> No, I don't is. know. I, I think the point is like, okay, I think the point is this. Does Dracula have a choice? I... <sighs> Good question. That, that's what it boils kind of down to. Could Christopher Lee's Dracula decide not to kill people and drink their blood? And so you have, you, have one, you have one man who has a choice, but he's not what he's doing is for what he thinks is the betterment of mankind, not to get his rocks off because he's a sadist, right? You have another character. Yeah. Their evil may not necessarily be their choice, but they derive fucking glee from it. I mean, Lee's Dracula is somebody who strives, he strides around and he revels in being evil. doesn't matter if there's a snack on the horizon or not. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think I think it all boils down to the fact of like whether or not you consider them even like the same sort of entity, because like because to me, the one argument I, I would agree with is that like Frankenstein is a man. Dracula is not. Dracula is not a human. Right. Like Dracula is a creature. Uh, so it's he is he is truly an evil thing i don't know that i but i think that lets him off the hook in a way that again i it there are certain readings of that character certainly like with dracula that yeah he is just a creature period i think there are other readings and i i I think it's true of Lee's dracula in that he's he's a man with a monster on his back i think i I think dr jekyll is a man you know but no matter what supernatural (laughs) affliction that he has (laughs) I think Dracula is but, the same thing. He started life well, as a man. He got this thing. Yeah. I mean, I, and plus, I, you got to consider I will the guy say this. too. I think different iterations of Dracula, I would have different answers for. If yes. that makes sense. Like, like oh, the Frank Langella at Dracula is like a whole different thing than the Christopher Lee Dracula. You know, like the, some Draculas do feel more like a human being that is afflicted with something. Versus others, whereas like the Christopher Lee Dracula to me really does feel like a monster. Like he doesn't feel like a man who is grappling with a monster, whereas other vampire stories kind of 
have that element there. To me, it feels like know? it doesn't feel like either to me. It feels like he's a man who's embraced being a monster and is enjoying it. Perhaps. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I see that. Plus, I mean, when he's stalking around, even in one of the later movies, and this is down to Lee being a fan of Bram Stoker's novel and always trying to inject as much of the book as he could into the movies, uh, you know, the, what's the line that he has? Uh, something like, you would set your mind against mine, who commanded nations. You know, it's yeah. just like, you are enjoying the hell out of being this evil motherfucker. Like, I... <laughs> and plus, I will say this, out of the two of them, I think if you, you know, dead of night, not a sun or running stream anywhere in sight. I think if you locked Victor Frankenstein and Dracula in a room together, I think Dracula is the guy that, or I'm sorry, I think Frankenstein is the guy that walks out after. I, because his intellect, I think he would see his way. That's not fair though, because he's also Van Helsing. (laughs) 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 So yeah, of course he'd walk out. God, Cushing is so great here. I love the stricken look on his face when he hears the scream. And yeah. he's, he's damn dashing in this moment. Like, this is the moment that he finally gets to play. You know, he's he's not necessarily the hero, but again, he gets the hero's moment, you know? Yeah. And he is genuinely, and again, this is, and this is part of the reason, like I said, the Frankenstein cycle is my favorite Hammer thing ever. This movie I love so much for any number of reasons. Um, but I love the fact that it finally gives Victor uh, uh, probably his biggest taste of humanity in the entire run here because you can see yeah. that it genuinely pains him what happens. Well, and 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 I like that sort of her, again, facing water on the precipice of a cliff, kind of restoring the natural order and her and Hans being united in a sort of eternal way that they maybe were fated to be that he attempted to change and fate sort of righted itself in the yeah. context of the film. Um, and also, 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 that's how you jump when you want to do action. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That's a better, yeah. I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, she's fucked. She's done. Um, <laughs> I do love that she takes that moment into her hands though. Like she, mm-hmm. he's the guy who strides in and says, now listen to me. You know, it wasn't you like, He's trying to rationalize it and talk her down. And she just very calmly, like, look, she made up her mind. Like, this is her choice. Right. It doesn't Uh, matter if it was me or not, because this is the outcome. This is the result. Well, and similar to the beginning of the film, right? Like the little boy watching his father, his father's demise, like Frankenstein is forced to face the truth of what's going on. And he kind of has to have, face the kind of sort of distinctly human choice that his own inhumanity has precluded him from grasping before this, you know? And I think that's a really cool way to end it. That sort of mirrors the beginning. For sure. And I think just, you know, watching the journey of Christina and Hans, like, (laughs) I'm really excited to see all of those douchebags get killed off one by one because they <laughs> fucking deserve it. But at the oh. same time, like I do still see it as a tragic element in the story because these other two characters who were innocent all the time have now been brought to being this murderous co-mingling monster creature when that's not what should have happened because neither one of them deserved either of that. 
Mm. Yeah. It is, it is, you know, it's, it's deeply tragic. It's as tragic. Yeah. Now I like to give Paul a little bit of hell over the curse of the werewolf because I'm not the biggest fan of that movie, but that movie it's a is great movie. Deeply awesome tragic. Movie. Um, and you're just wrong, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You can have your own opinions. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rose was terrible, but you know, it, 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 curse of the werewolf is a very tragic film. You know, it is a tragedy. I, but Frankenstein created woman does hit me much harder for all of the reasons, Emily, that you just mentioned. And I, I love it. And again, you know, I, I love how their story concludes as painful as it is. And I, I love how Frankenstein is left at the end of the movie, just sort of shuffling away. And I, I love Cushing in this role and I love him in this movie. And I, Again, going back to the Hallenbeck book, um, you know, Paul and I have talked about Cushing and the Frankenstein cycle so much on this podcast. And, you know, I in reading this one quote, it was revealed that apparently and this is not going to be any surprise, but, you know, Christopher Lee kind of despised the role of Dracula at some point, you know, and his continually being called back to it. But unlike Lee and his most you know sort of famous role for Hammer, you know, Cushing considered the role of the Baron to be sort of a godsend. Uh, he had discussed his opinions, not only on the role and how he played it, but also on uh, Mary Shelley's creation. There's this great quote that I found where he said, um, <clears throat> let me read here. In order to give some sort of credibility to Victor Frankenstein's nefarious deeds, which became more and more bizarre, and he more and more ruthless, as the scriptwriters burnt the midnight oil in their efforts to ring the changes, I needed to hold on to his basic motivation. The scriptwriters did their best with variations on the same theme, but Miss Shelley's original concept reigned supreme. I love that. I love that he held to the original text, and that was kind of like his uh, his, his guiding light, as it were. You know, uh, if we're as crazy and wild and varied as the movies get, like he always used that as his uh, his sort of core motivation. I, I I adore that take and that approach. And I think it's why, Paul, you have talked about this before, too, why even though the continuity can get dodgy amongst all of the various movies, and even though his arc has him up and down at times, nevertheless, they all still feel of a piece. You know, they make sense. Yeah, Yeah, I I like to think that he had, uh, the Cushing had his own internal continuity, you know, like that, that he, regardless of what the story was and what was going on that he carried himself from one movie to the next with the memory of the previous movies events. And I think we, and y'all touched on that earlier is that heading into the next movie, he is the most evil he ever is in any of these movies. Um, in some really awful ways that even I'm not a huge fan of, you know, the next movie, it's going to be a tough commentary to be honest. Uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed because there's a lot of stuff in that movie that I really grapple with. Um, but I do think it's, it makes sense coming in the wake of this film where he was at his most uh, open hearted, I guess, in a way, because uh, he was willing to try to sort of see people for who they really were and give that like he, he really is, I think, trying in his in his weird backwards way to give you know, Christina, a chance at a, what he believes is a happy life and to see it fail so spectacularly and have her end up taking her own life, which is probably the most offensive way that that could have ended for him. 
right? Like that he he gave her in his mind, he he re- restored her and her love's existence together in a united way only for them to reject it to the point where they'd rather not exist in his eyes uh, uh, than, than live out the life he's provided for them. Um, that's going to push him away from humanity in such a manner that's going to uh, create what we get in the next film. It is curious too, that other than the, the, the sort of body that he crafted for himself back in revenge, like Susan Denberg, like Christina, that's probably the most perfect creation that he had sort of given life to, you know, I, it wasn't, she wasn't like this hulking monstrosity or the shambling corpse, you know, that was as close to, you know, probably the life that he aimed to create when he first started. And it's, it's sort of, she simply refuses him that she refuses him that success. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right, somehow, some way, we have come to the end of this commentary. I had an absolute blast. Um, I, I I don't know about you all, but I just I adore this movie, and I'll take any opportunity to talk about it. If if you all want to come back next week and we'll talk about it again, that's completely fine. By <laughs> just throwing that out there. We'll do. No, more. I, just I do this was a fantastic more. movie. I'm really glad that I finally, finally watched it, and I got to talk about it with you guys. Well, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. And I got to ask, where can folks find you at online? And uh, what can they keep an eye out for from you in the future? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Horrorella blog. And um, I'm also obviously on the Dead Ringers podcast with Paul. So at some point, new content there. We're going to record some more later this month. And then I've got a few pieces coming out later this month on Daily Dead. Nice. Very cool. All right. Uh, so, so uh, Emily, Paul, uh, can the two of you maybe give me some sort of hint or preview as to what's coming up on Dead Ringers? Hmm. There, there might be an episode that ties into this very podcast. Say this be. very topic of conversation. Actually, I've heard some rumors. <laughs> Don't know. Hell yeah. There but. might be a Frankenstein double feature on the horizon. And if you're lucky, Jinx, uh, and you renounce your rose-bashing ways, uh, you might be invited on. The biggest tragedy of Titanic is that she lived to be an old age. Okay. Well. <laughs> and the feud Unfortunately, continues. Jinx won't be joining us for the Dead Ringers Hammer episode, but I, you uh, know, he'll be there in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I will, by God, be there in spirit. I will haunt you <laughs> during the recording of that episode. He's gonna, to. he's gonna bust into the Skype chat. Yeah, there's nothing I can do at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of hell that I give Titanic from this point forward, Paul, it's all on you, pal. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> all right, Paul. <laughs> Where can folks find you at online, man? Uh, I am at the always modest Paul is great two thousand on Twitter. Uh, and I am tweeting about movies a lot there. So, you know, if you, you want to hear me tweet about movies, then come on down. Good deal. Well, hey, thank you to you both for being on and for chatting this great movie. Like I said, it is my favorite Hammer film. And uh, uh, just thanks so much again for chatting it. Yeah, it was a good time. Really, Paul, time. You, 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 Paul, you went low key there at the last second. I just, that's cool. Man. It was a great time. 
And I, I, I will say again, just to reiterate, I am. Thank you, Emily, for showing up. This was amazing. And uh, it was awesome talking to you. Thanks for having me. This was a total blast. I second that, too. Thank you so much. All right. All right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. She, uh, she totally drowned Jack. Though. That is a deleted scene. That is canon. She <laughs> held his head below water. You, you. He didn't freeze. I, that's that's an insane take. You have the craziest. <laughs>